Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why it's silly to cry over parts of life when the whole of it calls for tears. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. I would bet that an unusual number of people who listen to this show are perfectionists, in that they only feel good about themselves when they meet exceptionally high standards, even in cases where high standards aren't exactly warranted or especially helpful. Those might be standards for moral behaviour, or perhaps alternatively academic success, or alternatively maybe uh, professional accomplishment. Today's guest, psychotherapist Tim LeBon, has provided therapy to a number of subscribers to the show who fit that description of perfectionism. And he's an unusual therapist because he did his thesis at Oxford on utilitarian moral philosophy, and he's published multiple books on Stoic philosophy as well. As Tim explains in a minute, while an intense desire to meet high and unvarying standards often comes from a good place, sooner or later it typically ends in disaster. It can make people feel miserable and sometimes leads to the development of depression or anxiety, especially after an external shock of some sort. And of course, the the whole time, it can make people quite a lot less likely to accomplish their goals. Have you been told that your standards are sometimes too high? Or have you felt like a failure as a person because you haven't succeeded in in meeting all your goals? Or have you raised your standards because you thought that the uh, standards you had were, were, were too easy? If that sort of thing sounds relatable, I strongly recommend listening to today's episode. In it, Tim and I talk about how perfectionism is different from scrupulosity or having an OCD personality or simply pursuing excellence, what leads people to adopt a perfectionist mindset, what sorts of pros and cons it offers people, how 80,000 Hours contributes to perfectionism among some readers and listeners, the things that Tim has learned helping perfectionists improve their lives, what happens in a session of cognitive behavioral therapy for someone who is struggling with perfectionism and whether or not it actually helps out patients conducting experiments to test whether one's core beliefs are in fact true, how exposure therapy for phobias in fact works extremely well, distinguishing mental health problems from physical health problems, and how low self-esteem and imposter syndrome are related to perfectionism. We then move on and talk about Tim's other big passion, which is the philosophy known as Stoicism, which it turns out is quite a lot more than I had previously appreciated. In that section, we cover why the dichotomy of control is so important for maintaining calm, what the ancient Stoics do better than utilitarian philosophers, what's good about being guided by virtues as opposed to pursuing good consequences, how to tell which are in fact the the true virtues that we're not to pursue, what the ancient Stoics got right from our modern point of view and what they got wrong, and whether Stoicism has a place in modern mental health practice. If after listening to this, you're interested to hear another episode of the show, this time more focused on depression and anxiety specifically, then I can strongly recommend checking out one of our most popular episodes ever, which is episode 100 on having a successful career with depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome. But now, without any further ado, I bring you Tim LeBond. Today, I'm speaking with Tim LeBon, a registered psychotherapist, accredited CBT therapist, life coach, and author living in Surrey in the UK. He's written multiple books, including Wise Therapy, Stoicism, Cobwebs and Gems, and 365 Ways to Be More Stoic, a day-by-day guide to practical stoicism. 
Tim originally studied politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford before doing an MPhil in philosophy at the University of London. And today he lectures in positive psychology at City University of London, as well as offering cognitive behavioral therapy to both public and private patients. Most importantly for us, over the decades, he has provided therapy to a decent number of people who are trying to use their careers to solve the world's most pressing problems, uh, along the sorts of lines that we discuss here on the 80,000 Hours podcast. Uh, and he's been trying to help them with issues like perfectionism, imposter syndrome, uh, and anxiety. So I'm, I'm super excited to be talking to Tim because he's pretty unique uh, in his combination of understanding and being sympathetic to the worldview that I have and that I guess we generally have on this show, uh, while also being super knowledgeable about CBT therapy, moral philosophy, stoicism. Uh, and positive psychology and having lessons that he wants to share which he thinks might help people trying to do good uh, both be happier and, and more productive so thanks so much for coming on the podcast Tim. thank you rob for inviting me i'm absolutely thrilled to be here i hope we're going to get to discuss what you've learned about perfectionism and how to manage it but first what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important so up until november last year i was working pretty hard at my new book which is uh, 365 ways to be more stoic and that might be a good place to start because the title is a slight misnomer. It's actually 365 ways to be a better version of yourself, happier, and it incorporates or is a synthesis of Stoicism and CBT and modern or positive psychology. So that was keeping me pretty busy last year. And now my typical day is to, is, so I'm a therapist. So Mondays and Tuesdays, I work in the NHS, NHS talking therapies. Yeah. So that's wonderful thing, free therapy mm. provided by the NHS. And I'm a, I'm a senior high intensity therapist, which means I get to uh, supervise other clinicians, do a little bit of clinical work myself and organize some of the training and, and think about how best to kind of prepare therapists to do their therapy that kind of thing yeah and then the rest of the week i'm in private practice and i do a little bit of teaching as as well so let's let's waste no time in getting getting down to business i guess in this interview we're going to be talking about mental health and motivation issues that we think are disproportionately likely to affect uh the sorts of people who listen to this show or are you know are busy reading lots of the eighty thousand hours website uh at least relative to kind of randomly chosen people First off, we're going to be thinking about perfectionism and different kinds of perfectionism. I know some of your patients of the years have identified as being involved in the effective altruism movement, uh, and some of what you say is likely to be drawn from what you've learned uh, working working with those folks. Uh, but I'm sure a lot of people who don't even know what effective altruism refers to will uh, potentially recognize aspects of their own psychology in the discussion today. And, and my impression is that, I guess... The challenges we're going to be talking about come up pretty often for people who have some combination of being smart and successful, as well as quite conscientious or hardworking and being very concerned with doing the right thing. And maybe also, especially if they've, uh, if they've embedded themselves in a group of people who are sort of the same way and, and are also very concerned with trying to do good and, and working hard and, and being successful people. So just to sketch out the order of things so people have an idea of where we're going. As you said, you're a registered cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, so we're going to start by kind of characterizing perfectionism and talking about what core fundamental advice you'd offer to someone who came to you because that was creating issues for them. But also, you, uh, as for a therapist, you're in the top 1% probably in terms of knowledge of philosophy and uh, you have this side interest in stoicism and positive psychology and so on. So later, later on, we'll turn to all of that and also broaden our view to talk about challenges that listeners uh, might potentially face beyond, beyond perfectionism. Sound good? Sounds like a good plan, Rob. Brilliant. All right. So could you describe the kinds of perfectionism that you found in some clients focused on doing good with, with their careers? There is actually a, a rather tangled web here. 
that we'll we'll get to untangle if the listeners can can be patient with us <laughs> of perfectionism, different types of perfectionism, low self-esteem, imposter syndrome. We're going to be talking about something called moral perfectionism. So let's start with perfectionism, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. First of all, it's not a good name, perfectionism. Why's that? Because many people who are perfectionists don't think they are. They will say things, but I'm not perfect. Okay. <laughs> so what we're talking of here is someone who has very high standards. But it's not just that, because there's such a thing as functional perfectionism, which is someone who has very high standards and reaches them and lives a happy life. And you might say to me, Tim, what's the problem? And the answer is, there's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're talking about here is dysfunctional perfectionism. Mm. Or someone who has standards that are some combination of unfeasibly high and unsustainable. And it actually impedes their functioning and is very often self-defeating. So is that the, is that the core issue, just that the, the standards in absolute terms are extremely difficult for them to reach or at least to reach, to reach consistently? That's one of them, certainly. One is that the standards are just too high or too inflexible or unsustainable. A second feature is that people often think that if they don't attain those standards, something really bad will happen. Hmm. For instance, people will shun them or, hmm. or they'll get the sack or they will just be no good as a person. So in other words, another feature of general perfectionism and technically the name for it is clinical perfectionism, is that people tend to put too many of their eggs in the achievement basket. Mm. So think of someone who is a workaholic. So it could be, say, could be any career. could be someone working in the city. could be a doctor. could be a teacher. And this person might be someone who, they might be doing something valuable, they might not be doing something valuable, but they're putting all of their eggs in the achievement basket and that's what they identify as. I am a teacher or banker. And they might, well, work ridiculous hours, do not so much self-care and relaxation and fun as most other people. And they might, uh, they might have periods where they're doing very well. And obviously, there might be a lot of fringe benefits. Oh, you're doing very well. You're earning all this money. You've, you've got promoted. But eventually, usually, well, Usually if they come to see someone like me, it means there's been a problem mm. and that problem could be that they've burnt out or their relationships have suffered. So we sometimes call that the crash and burn or the boom and bust kind of cycle. And they can well have problems with anxiety or depression, although underlying in that case would be clinical perfectionism. I don't know if that... Yeah. makes any sense. I don't know if you know anyone like that, perhaps. Oh, uh, I know. <laughs> I've lived long enough to know, to, to know a few. Um, yeah, okay, so th those three big traits you're saying, there's the kind of standards that are high in absolute terms and very challenging to consistently meet. Then there's the kind of maybe inflated sense of the terrible negative consequences that uh, might happen if you fail to meet these very high standards. And I suppose related to that is putting a lot of your identity or your self, uh, positive self-image or maybe exclusively pinning it on this sort of professional success. And, you know, maybe you might have a professional setback, uh, but nonetheless, you know, you're treating your family very well or your friends really appreciate you, but you don't care about those things. So it would still be a crushing blow to your to your self-image absolutely 
I guess it seems to me like maybe there's two different classes of perfectionism that uh, that I've seen out there. One is maybe this the thing where you really don't want to um, submit a piece of work or publish something, I guess is the one that, that I've seen the most in kind of the content production uh, business, because you're very worried that it's not quite good enough and people are going to uh, pull it apart. And so you kind of delay finishing or de- delay delivering things or maybe even delay starting them because you think you're not never going to get it up to you know a perfect level and then there's this kind of other thing which seems related but not quite identical where it's people who beat themselves up all the time or you know constantly they're having thoughts about how they should be like living more morally uh you know whenever they take time off they feel like well really i should be working uh, whenever they spend money on themselves they think well maybe i should give that money to charity i suppose um environmentalists i think sometimes uh, have a flavor of this as well where they feel you know any sort of consumption that they engage in is harming the planet and they and they potentially feel feel guilty about that would you say uh, these are two sides of the same coin or as what's the relationship between these if you would distinguish them as well right so i think perhaps the second type would be moral perfectionism yeah and i would say that is a subtype of clinical perfectionism and very often people might have both so what does that well it looks like exactly what, what you said but what do those two types of perfectionism share? They've got probably all those three criteria that you mentioned earlier, putting most of your identity eggs in, in one basket, and also having high and inflexible and unsustainable standards, and also fear of what happens if they don't reach those standards. Mm. Now, with the general clinical perfectionism case, it's usually just to do with achievement in general. So, Yes, I forgot the academic. Academics could well fit into this yeah. category as well as the, the the jobs that I described. You know, so you could have a, an academic who uh, procrastinates. So procrastination is another very very common feature of of this type of person who worries a lot. Mm. So they can get into a cycle that they have this very high standard. There's a trigger, like someone suggests, "Why don't you go for this publication?" or why don't you write this book, or why don't you finish this dissertation or something, because I think it can happen to people doing PhDs, for instance. So they might turn it down because they see it as such a big mountain to climb that they don't even try it. So avoidance is one thing they can do. Uh, They might ebb and flow in their motivation. Yes, I will do it. No, what a terrible mistake. No, I won't. Mm. That's, That's procrastination. And they might just take a huge amount of time over it. Oh, and they also might not... uh, seek feedback from others Mm. because they they're frightened of failure so you can see how this might play out for instance someone writing a writing a phd or or not writing a phd so that's the general or clinical perfectionism and then the subtype of it which we're calling moral perfectionism today it's it's a term that i started to use because i started to see these type of people very often they're effective altruists Uh, there's, there's one or two who weren't and then when i looked up in the, in the literature, it, there is such a thing as moral perfectionism, but it's not very well researched or documented. Hmm. So anyway, what is this moral perfectionism? It would be very similar, except instead of focusing just on achievement, it would be a focusing on your moral worth. So your identity is linked with how good you are as a person. And then the standards would again be unfeasibly high and inflexible, maybe something like doing the most good you can <laughs> to coin a phrase every, every moment of the day yeah uh, uh sounds and, tough does sound very tough and uh and then again so you'd worry about not doing it you would procrastinate you would might even avoid some tasks because you avoid being in the public glare because mm. you fear you might you might fail and then if you didn't succeed 
or you thought you hadn't succeeded in reaching that target, which of course you won't because it's such a tough target. Sometimes you won't succeed in having a really fantastic outcome in everything you do. Then you'll be very harsh, harsh self-criticism. And very often a result of that is shame. And shame for any listeners out there, I'm sure there are lots of them who've, who've uh, listened to Brené Brown and, and, and similar TED, TED talks and writings. Shame is one of the least constructive emotions Guilt can be quite useful emotions, but shame is where you you just feel like hiding away. So very often you just feel like escaping, so you don't get help. And you're just left with this feeling of very often self-hatred, self-loathing. Because remember, your whole identity is wrapped up with being this really good person. Mm. You've set yourself an incredibly high, unfeasible standard to do that. You haven't achieved it. And then you're just left there on your own thinking that you fail and that you're a terrible person. Yeah. And so that would be that would be moral perfectionism. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Yeah, completely. I, I guess you could see how this could be what both an intoxicating mix to start with and also creates a positive feedback loop that can get people into serious trouble where feeling ashamed and feeling terrible about yourself is not super conducive to then going and working really hard. Or at least a lot of the time, uh, that's going to be then an impediment to uh, to reaching those standards because you're just having negative thoughts all the time and worrying that you're not going to meet the standards. And then then maybe you actually will stop even reaching like ordinary people's standards. Uh, And then uh, you're you're stuck in this like negative feedback loop of negative self-image and like not being able to act and so on. That's exactly it. And yeah, so depression and anxiety, sometimes at clinical levels, can come out of the bottom of this. Hmm. And then, as you said, once you're in that, then it's actually very hard to just reach the normal standards. And then that would go back to saying, oh, God, I really am such a terrible person. Because people like that tend to also have a, a very high sense of responsibility and tend not to make allowances for themselves. Hmm. Uh, and, and as I said, if they if they also are full of shame, they won't actually get positive feedback from other people so much because they're they're just they're, they're hiding it. So it's a really difficult mixture. Yeah. What, what's distinctive about yeah tr- treating people with with this issue as opposed to I guess other other mental health issues that people come to you with? I have to say, and not just because some of them might be listening, that it is a pleasure to work with people who who identify as effective altruists, and that includes many. Many of them might be perfectionists. And why is that? It's because they're bright, they're conscientious, they're super motivated, and they're generally just nice, nice people. What you've got is people who are, who are super motivated with a real problem. You know, we're not, we're not just talking about people who, who are just having a little bit of therapy because, you know, there's a luxury. Mm. This is something that can very often cause clinical levels of depression, anxiety, and stop them doing what? Is most important to them, which is making a positive impact on the world. So I, I enjoy working with effective altruists. And of course, from my own perspective, if I do help them, then it means I'm helping people who will then go on to do a lot of good. Yeah. So that's another so little benefit. Yeah, nice. Do, do people generally um, benefit from therapy or do, do they generally see substantial improvements in how much uh, perfectionism is, is um, yeah, in, in, impeding their life? That is a very difficult question to answer. But what I would say is it probably depends to a large extent. I say it's a number of things. One is whether people really identify themselves in the model. So I need to say a little, is that okay if I say a little bit now about what CBT involves? So often people think CBT is just a a box load of techniques and, and tricks. And it has got a box load of tricks and techniques and tools, but that's not really what CBT is. CBT is where... You, first of all, 
try and understand the problem, to identify the problem, in this case perfectionism, you then try and understand it. And lots of researchers have, have uh, tried to create a general map for uh, common psychological problems like depression, anxiety, perfectionism, low self-esteem, and a whole host of other ones like OCD and social anxiety and body dysmorphia and all, kind, all kinds of things. So researchers go and create what we could think of as a general map. And so if I'm assessing someone in the first session, I'll be asking them questions which might seem a bit random, but actually... So, for instance, if, if someone came who said, oh, I think I might be a perfectionist, I'd be asking them about their standards. I'd be asking them about whether they procrastinate. I'd be asking them about do they, do they, what happens if they don't meet their, their standards. Hmm. Um, and those questions would be drawing from the generalised map of what people who are, in that case, perfectionist, tend to do. Then what we do is we create a customised map of their perfectionism, if it is perfectionism. Or sometimes it's a mixture of perfectionism and something else. And so we we try and work out exactly what's going on for them. Very often we'll draw diagrams. Very often it involves them keeping diaries and logging what's actually happening. And then, you know, when they say, ah, oh, yeah, we've got it, that's me, then we go on to uh, to the active treatment phase, which is trying to target the processes that keep this problem going. So for just to give one example... If someone's very critical of themselves, we might introduce them to self-compassion. So it involves a lot of things, doesn't it? It involves, first of all, someone turning up, turning up regularly, yeah. which if someone's you know, very, very distressed might be, might be very challenging. It means that they buy into this way of looking at things, which not everybody does. And they've got to be able to collaborate in the therapy because you're working together with them. So I often say, I know a fair amount about psychology but you know about yourself and so we're going to piece it together like scientists and try and understand it and then they've got to go and do the stuff between sessions which is a really important part and to come back to your question as to what's the chances of success i would say doing homework i hate the word homework i tend to call it home practice uh, doing the home practice is probably the best indicator of success in therapy. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I guess you mentioned that many people come in with, with this sort of cluster of issues, I guess identifying that something is not going great in their life, but they don't necessarily think of themselves as, as perfectionists. Are there any who, who do, or is it hard to persuade people that they have perfectionism if they're reluctant to think that? And I suppose, do you think it's your place to try to persuade people to, to see their life that way if they don't view themselves uh, as having this issue? I think there's there's the word perfectionism to get over. And if they haven't said they were perfectionist, but they talk about some of these kind of the maintaining processes happening, which would be, you know, often people tell me that I'm, I'm I set the bar too high and sometimes I procrastinate and, and I'm quite harsh with myself when I, when I don't meet them, then you'd be picking up possible clinical perfectionism. And then there would be a discussion about whether this was a good thing or not. So very often, an important phase very early on in, session, in, in therapy for perfectionism is the pros and cons of their current way of being. Sometimes we draw out a little table of uh, perfectionism versus excellence because they're not the same thing. Hmm. So, for instance, perfectionism is aiming at something perfect and search for excellence is something excellent. And they're, they're not quite the same thing. Uh, one of them is more achievable. One of them is more achievable. 
and and again perfection would be something that was very subjective as well and and ultimately unattainable whereas excellence is something that you can have certain skills and you can train yourself to achieve it you say which would you rather go for for all this stuff on on this left hand column which is the perfection stuff which is generally unattainable or this stuff on the right hand column which is excellence and generally they would say yeah let's go for for excellence then you're you're kind of getting people to understand that it might be the search for perfection that's the problem because what people don't want to be is mediocre <laughs> so they're saying, Tim, Tim, you just want me to be rubbish. You want me to, you know, I, I know X, Y, and Z who just don't do anything. You know, yeah. they, they waste their lives. You want me to be like that? They don't say that usually because they're too polite. But, but, <laughs> That's but, the fear. but you, you see that in the body language. Uh, it's not even necessarily about lowering your your standard that much. It's about the standards perhaps being more, as I said, flexible and attainable. So, for instance, if someone has a physical health condition, then it wouldn't be fair to then assume that they can reach the same standards, do the same things as they would if they didn't have it. Or just always be hitting the same level regardless of how their physical health issue is going. Exactly. Perfectionists tend to expect high... Do they have high standards for other people, for their colleagues and so on? Uh, Great question. (laughs) There's such a thing called obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is another very confusing term because it's not the same as obsessive compulsive disorder. But it does share, to some extent, a, a concern with orderliness. But anyway, these people with, with the OCD personality have unrelenting standards about other people. You know, if someone's got a boss like that or a partner like that, then Instant that resignation. is bad news. Okay, right, I see. We're challenging for other people, I suppose, uh, as yeah. well as them. It's less common for people to recognise that in themselves. Hmm. But I have worked with people with that problem. I can think of one lady I, I worked with who just was very tearful that she'd realised that this was how she was and and she was very motivated to try and change it. I mean, there's various ways that people can approach that, but but one would be to recognise that their rules don't have to be rules for other people. That could be a really big insight. That right. These are just my rules hmm. and it's not but fair. other people have different values. It's so. not fair for me to, to expect everyone, or they might say, oh, I can't expect everyone to be at my level, which would be <laughs> a certain way of putting it. Meet them, yeah, well. okay. meet, meet them halfway. <laughs> yeah. Would you classify that as kind of a, a different issue? Because I guess um, my impression of people who you know, have very high standards for themselves is that often they don't have particularly high standards for other people. It's kind of very self-focused or... They can be very nice about other people, maybe even you know, quite self-effacing in, in in some ways, and, and not especially demanding. So it's like it's something about uh, the attitude towards their own work in particular that that's that's creating the issue. I think the vast majority of people in the effective altruist movement would be exactly that kind of person you've described who have a double standard. So we can use that in therapy. Hmm. That haven't you got a double standard? What would you say if a friend? Who, who was ill, didn't manage to put in their assignment or whatever. And they'd say, well, of course, it would be fine. And what are you saying about yourself? Oh, it's terrible. So that can help just to take a, a different perspective. Hmm. Have you noticed any patterns, or maybe do people in the literature know patterns? Like, what, what are the uh, reasons that some people end up having this kind of worldview or this sort of attitude and, and other people don't uh, at all? Do we understand the drivers? No, is the okay, short right. answer. <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, very... The stock answer, which I can give you, Mm. is it's a combination of genetics and upbringing and what happens in your current environment, which is where we might get onto the effective altruism environment as as possibly sometimes a a contributor potentially to this. 
So, yeah, I mean, it is a bit of a, a, a pat answer, really. But, I mean, one thing we could say is that parenting style, mm. if there are any parents out there, then parenting style, if you want to bring up someone who has these problems, yeah. this is what you should do. <laughs> okay, yeah, go for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> what you should do is, first of all, tell them that all that matters is success. That's all that matters in life. Yeah. And you should also say that it's the results that matter. There's no excuse for not succeeding. Mm. And if they come once and get 90% and came second in their class, what you have to say to them is, who came first? Okay. <laughs> why and why you... can't you be like them? Yeah. So, and, and obviously, we, I, I do, do meet people in therapy who've, who've had that kind of parenting. Mm. So joking apart, because I don't want to trivialise it, you know, if, you, if you've had that message as a child, it's quite ingrained. Well, I suppose, but you just end up with that voice in your head, basically. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not good enough. You're rubbish. You know, you've got to, you know, 100% or failure. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of uh, the way people talk to themselves, what what sort of classic lines do people have in their head when they're engaging in this thinking pattern? Like, are there any particular, like, classic, like, sentences that people are repeating to themselves that are generating... Uh, I, was, I was thinking in part, like, maybe someone could recognise themselves in this if they're thinking, like, I have this particular, like, thought recurrently. Is there anything that maybe we've already kind of mentioned the main ones, but... Yeah, I mean, some people even recognise the tone of voice rather than the content. And they would say, gosh, that's my mother speaking, or that's my father speaking, or that's that teacher. But it would kind of be, you know, you've got to always succeed. There's no excuse for failure. I mean, no no excuse would be perhaps something that might come, um, up, a might lot. come up a lot. I think if people have had that kind of upbringing, they will probably recognise themselves. Do you think your clients are more inclined to listen to you because you have this background in philosophy? You did a thesis on utilitarianism or something to do with utilitarianism, if, if, if I recall, which I suppose, I mean, you know, all different moral philosophies, I guess, could could lead to this style of uh, thinking. But it seems like consequentialist uh, moral philosophy is maybe particularly inclined to this perfectionist issue because issue of its kind of maximizing uh, element. In fairness to utilitarianism, we need to point out that uh, Chidi Anagonyi of The Good Place is probably a prime fictional example of moral perfectionism. No spoilers, because I think this happens in a very early episode of The Good Place, which you haven't, if you haven't watched, then I do recommend it. <laughs> uh, so he's told that Eleanor is his soulmate. And so she says, will you do anything for me? And he says, yes, of course I will. And then she tells him that she shouldn't be in The Good Place. And so he has to lie. So he's a deontologist, and so he gets stomachache. Oh no! What do I do? I, I've got two things. I've got to, I've got to lie, or I've got to lie to Eleanor. I've got to lie to other people about Eleanor, and so that's just saying it's not just utilitarianism mm. that can suffer from this particular problem. But to come back to your question, mm. so I, I studied PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, and. Uh, I didn't know any philosophy and I just did it because I did the subject because my history teacher had said, oh, Tim, you like history and you like economics. Uh, this thing called PPE, you can drop philosophy after the first year. <laughs> and philosophy came to be, I was going to say the love of my life, but my children and wife might not forgive me. <laughs> Your intellectual I, love. Uh, my yeah. intellectual love. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we did J.S. Mill and utilitarianism in the first year and I just, I just thought, wow. Obviously, when you're doing that, you come across all the problems that there might be in utilitarianism. But the basic idea that happiness matters, that suffering matters, and that we should think about consequences rather than some kind of random, what seem to be random rules, uh, it just it just made so much sense. 
So I really uh, got into uh, into philosophy in general, but particularly ethics and particularly utilitarianism. So I went on to do an, M- an MPhil, actually, and, and that was uh, R.M. Hare, and now probably pretty obscure philosopher but at the time he was rock and roll right he was he was he was the thing <laughs> i've heard you know? of him yeah <laughs> you've heard of him yeah so it sounds like a lot of your clients are pretty bright people and they yeah. can they could potentially argue back quite convincingly or come up with uh, strong reasons why they should continue to think the way that they do and i wonder whether having a deeper understanding of where they're coming from philosophically maybe could be quite central in being able to uh I mean, like you have to have the empathy to understand why someone uh, has the philosophy that they do in order to potentially get them to, to think differently. I think that is the case. And my worry would be that some therapists would just treat all this as intellectualizing. Either they wouldn't understand it or they would just consider that it's it's not to be taken seriously and they would be very dismissive of it. So uh, partly because I've got a philosophical background and partly because I'm basically sympathetic mm. to utilitarianism, I think, yeah, I think people do appreciate that. Yeah. Because, yeah, to give it its due, uh, yeah, what could you say in, in, in defense of perfectionism in a, in a sense? I mean, I, I guess people aren't arriving in, the, in this place for, for no reason whatsoever. There, there are like often good intentions or, or partially good ideas, I think, behind it. Yeah, but you know what they say about good intentions. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they're well, the road, I the road to hell. I uh, yeah, and you might say the road to depression and anxiety is, yeah, is, is yeah. continued. So, yeah, so there's a CBT therapist called Christine Podetsky who says everyone does things for good reasons. And I love that. And I think as a therapist, that's what one is trying to do. One's trying to understand why people are doing this. Well, certainly there will be some payoff. They'll, as we said earlier, they'll get praise, they might get rewards. And also, sometimes they're going to hit the goal and that'll feel really great. And they might have this positive identity as a high achiever so it's not just the toxic parents and the toxic genes you know but that's assuming that they get into functional perfectionism mm-hmm. and i think by its very nature when it becomes unsustainable or inflexible then it's going to be more dysfunctional yeah it's fragile it's maybe always going to be riding the line between something that's working now but some kind of shock could perturb you like you know if you get sick and then you can't do things then you've set up this positive feedback loop where you can potentially become quite unhappy yeah, exactly. With moral perfectionism, which, as, as we said, is having a lot of your identity and being a very good person and having very high standards, again, there will be, there will be payoffs, hmm. won't there? You'll be thought to be uh, perhaps a role model for people, probably be thought to be a very, very good person, hmm. and you actually will be very conscientious. So there are certainly good reasons to aspire to have higher than average standards in terms of achievement and in terms of what you do morally. So that that is to give it its due, but... but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so let's push on from kind of describing and understanding perfectionism to talk about, I guess, yeah, what sort of advice and, and, and assistance you can potentially offer people who come to you saying, this isn't working out for me so well uh, anymore. You're, you're training quite a couple of different uh, approaches. I guess the technical, what do people say modalities? Is that the, is that the technical term? But I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, so you might just say like different, different ways of uh, helping people who are, who are having mental health issues. Um, but the, the main approach you use is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, what, yeah, why, why is that the, the one that you, uh, I guess, like turn to most often or that uh, you most often find yourself using? I think the, the best answer I can give is, is that it's the most evidence-based one. But there's also, to be honest, an, an element where it probably appeals to 
to me as as, as someone that's quite logical and a problem solver mm. and i like working with structure and so i i initially trained as a as a counselor where it's a much more open-ended tell me about what's wrong and you listen and are empathic and i found two things uh one was that people didn't improve as as much as i i hoped but also they didn't improve as much as they hoped mm. and also i found it quite frustrating because i think there must be more than i more than i can do yeah. so it's a very active therapy it's very active you're trying to understand the problem and you're trying to take steps to alleviate it so there's a theoretical answer which is it works with asterisk qualifications <laughs> doesn't work for everyone isn't the best treatment for every single condition yeah. etc uh and also i think it it suits my personality and my particular skill set yeah and i suppose uh, i guess if it fits your personality it might well fit the personality of the kind of people you're clicking with who you're having chemistry with in the, exactly. in the sessions so yeah I, I mean i think many listeners will have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy have some idea uh what it is and i guess probably many people have, have done it uh, I've, I've been through a cbt workbook uh, before um yeah, but I guess for those who aren't so familiar, is, is there a way of summarizing in, in a nutshell what, what, what it is? Well, it's partially what's written on the tin. It's cognitive, which means it's to do with how we're thinking about things. And it's behavioral, which means it's to do with what we do and what we don't do. So let's take a, a different example, perhaps, mm. of someone who's depressed. Uh, I say different, although depression can often feature in perfectionism mm. and moral perfectionism. So someone who's depressed might just realise that they're not their usual selves, they might have low energy, they might lose motivation, might not feel like doing anything, and they might present themselves to a doctor, and the doctor might say, oh, you've got a choice of uh, medication, or you might want to try some therapy, and why don't you try CBT? Come along to a CBT therapist. And uh, as I said earlier, when I was talking about perfectionism, you know, you you do some questionnaires actually that's another important part of cbt yeah. to try and get a baseline for where they are you try and do that kind of map of of what's going on for them you'd probably do some some get them to some diaries and then for depression actually you'd probably go with the behavioral bit more than the cognitive bit to start with because if you're in a very deep funk it's very often hard to just think yourself out of it yeah. You know, if you're if, if you're painting everything black, then it'll stay black, really, no matter what the therapist says. Mm. And so very often you need to kickstart it by getting some positive feedback from the world. So so again, if someone came for depression, probably what the therapist might ask you to do is something called behavioral activation, mm. which means get active. Even though you don't feel like it, go out, start speaking to people, take very small steps, do things uh one idea is that uh, action comes before motivation very often rather than after it. Hmm. So don't wait for the motivation bus to come. I see. Uh, so those would be the kind of kind of things. And then when someone started to to enter out into the world a bit more, uh, then they might start to feel better and then, and then you might do some cognitive work on them as well. So cognitions in, in therapy, they're, they're like particular things that you say to yourself. That's what a cognition means, right? There are different layers of cognitions. Hmm. So there's something called automatic negative thoughts, mm. which might be, I don't know, uh, you're driving along and someone beeps you or horns you and you might have an automatic negative thought, which we probably can't repeat on air. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would turn the airwaves blue. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, 
that would be automatic negative thought, the thought that runs through your mind. And then there's a second layer of cognitions, which are called assumptions or rules for living. They're, they're not quite the same, but they're in the, in the same category, which might be people should respect me. Hmm. So if you've got the rule, people should respect me, or the assumption that people should should drive without beeping their horns at the least little excuse, uh, then you're more likely to have that negative automatic thought. So in other words, that's going to a deeper level. And then the deepest level still are what are called core beliefs, which can be core beliefs about yourself. So someone with low self-esteem might have a core belief of I'm not good enough. Hmm. And someone with moral perfectionism might have a core belief. Uh, well, actually, it's possibly more an assumption or a rule, but it would be something like I've got to do the most good I can and people will shun me and criticize me harshly if I don't do the most good I good I can. So there's three levels. Mm. And very often as a therapist, you're working at the top level, the I mean the the automatic negative thoughts to start with, because those are the easiest to change. Yeah. Uh, they're easiest to detect. Well they're actually not sure easiest to detect, but they're certainly the easiest to change. And sometimes that's all people need. But then with the kind of more personality related problems so it's not that there are things called personality disorders, but I, th I see things as perfectionism and low self-esteem as personality-related issues because mm. they're kind of, it's not just kind of one day you're a bit perfectionist and the next day you're not. It's kind of is a, a trait, personality trait. Uh, there you tend to be having to work not just with the automatic thoughts, but with the assumptions and sometimes the core beliefs. And so it can take quite a bit longer. I see. Yeah, okay. So I suppose so. The thoughts are at the high level. I suppose you have behaviors; they're very visible. Then you've got yep. kind of thoughts at the, at the surface level of what's going on in the head, and then there's like there's beliefs underneath that that are generating the thoughts potentially. And I suppose maybe even like deeper assumptions underneath all of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the thing I was going to say is that it's you know normally we think that kind of thoughts generate behavior, uh, whereas it sounds like the rule of thumb in a lot of these treatments is that behavior can generate thoughts. So you'd normally think it might be easier to first decide that going for a walk might be nice and then go for a walk. But actually, in fact, going it might be easier to just go for a walk regardless of what you think and then find that actually it was fine. Things don't have to necessarily be that way, but, but it seems like they are. Yeah. So in CBT, we there's a model called a five areas model, which actually, to complicate things a bit more, has cognitions or thinking and behaviours mm. as two cogs, if you like. But it also has emotions and the body or physiology and the situation so those are five areas and the idea is that they all influence each other they all interact so that very simple model of just thoughts causing behavior can sometimes be true and it can be a very important causal direction to work on but uh we trained a cbt therapist to be alive to the fact that it could be uh you can change it by by targeting any of the others. And of course, the body, you know, that, that might be by medication, which wouldn't be a therapist's role. But uh, some people respond very well to medication, mm. or it might be things like exercise. And the environment, sometimes someone, for instance, in a very toxic relationship, they might just need to get out of that relationship. And hey, presto, their life will improve enormously. Okay, so let's maybe now imagine... Um a hypothetical uh, CBT uh, session that you might do, uh, I suppose, with someone who was having kind of these classic issues with uh, with perfectionism, say, in their in their work. Yeah, yeah. So, what? How, how would you start a session, or what? What things might you ask uh, early on in order to understand what's going on? 
So as I mentioned, CBT is structured. So generally, there'd be a very brief, how are you? Generally, that would only take a couple of minutes, but sometimes something would emerge there that would then go onto the agenda. Because then what, what one does is have an agenda for the meeting. So it's quite business-like in a way. Mm. It's that strange combination of being very business-like, but also very, very personal mm. and hopefully empathic as well. So I'd probably say, uh, hi, Rob, how was your week? And, and then, okay, so what should we put on our agenda for today? And, and then we might have a standing item, which is to review the home practice which is what the, ta- the therapy task you've, you've done in that week. So I'd say, so we'll, I'm, re- I'm super interested in how you got on with, the, with, with that task you were doing. That's something that was perfectionist, perfectionism. So your, your task last week, if I remember rightly, was to deliberately send an email with a mistake in it because you're, you've got very high standards about, about grammar. And so we agreed, didn't we, that you're going to send a, a non-important email, not, not one to your most important client, but just an uh, an email that say has a grammatical error so so uh did you do it yes i did you know okay well i'm super interested to see what what we can learn from that and then i might say so what else would you like to put on the agenda rob and when people are super engaged with therapy then they'll they'll have a list of one or two items Hmm. Uh, but to start with uh very often it's me saying okay so what's happening the next week is there anything relevant to what we're talking about happening? And then that'll be a cue to say, oh, yeah, I'm giving this presentation uh, in two days' time. Okay, is that relevant to your social anxiety or perfectionism? So should we talk about that? So agenda setting, and then you're working through the agenda, which would be looking at the home practice, what we can learn from it to- together. Uh, we might be looking at the that map that I was talking about of your of, of your issue, which is technically called the formulation. We also have goals, therapy goals, which I would ask the client for before the first session probably. And then we'd be reviewing them. Where are you out of 10 on those? Are these still the relevant goals for you? Should mm-hmm. we be looking at any of those today? So we were working through, you normally have about two or three things on, on the agenda, working through some of them, but then we'd make sure to set home practice for next week and then be doing a fair amount of summarizing and checking that we're on track during the session. So it's got a very clear structure. And I should add also that there's a mix of guided discovery or Socratic questioning, which means you're not telling the client something, you're helping them learn from the experience. So let's go to that. So it's called a behavioral experiment. The behavioral experiment that this client was set was to deliberately have a spelling mistake in a couple of emails. And so how did, how, did you do it? Yes. What happened? Well, I did it and I was a little bit nervous, but then nobody seemed to notice. Oh, nobody noticed. So how did you feel then? Okay, uh, well, maybe it doesn't matter so much. So what do we learn from that? Well, maybe I don't have to check my email. I don't have to spend 20 minutes checking every email so much. So that's guided discovery because mm. you could straight out go out and tell someone, oh, I never bothered to check my emails to see whether anyone's managing grammatical mistakes, so stop stop checking. But if I did that, how would you feel? If I just if I lectured you like that, how would you most likely feel? <laughs> Maybe irritated or not, not convinced anyway. Yeah. Exactly. There'd be some resistance. Whereas if it's set up as an experiment, there's two benefits. One is you're discovering it for yourself. The other thing which is beautiful about cognitive behavioral therapy is that sometimes there's an unexpected outcome. Now, supposing this person comes back and said, why did you tell me to do that, Tim? Yeah. My boss was furious with me. Yeah. 
well, that's not a great outcome because you don't want the boss to be furious with them. Sure. But you've learned something. Mm. You've learned that their boss is possibly someone with that OCD personality yeah, we were talking right. about. Yeah, yeah. And so there is a reality to their precautions. And that maybe that's how they've ended up uh, with, with this concern. Uh, well, possibly. Kind of yeah, it, might, it might be that that's true of the whole workplace, is, yeah. is it that? So absolutely. So you try and do a lot of that guided discovery, but there is a place as well for what's called more didactic, which might be, for instance, if you're teaching someone a relaxation exercise, you can do it kind of Socratically and say things like, how do you relax and what's your best way of relaxing? Uh, why don't you try that again? But the problem might be that, that someone just hasn't got that skill in their in their kit, kit bag. So there's certainly a place for for saying something like, "Do you think that a relaxation exercise would be would be useful before you're doing this big presentation?" Uh, and if they said yes, you'd say, "Well, there's a couple you might choose from. There's uh, guided relaxation. There's breathing." There's something called progressive muscle relaxation. Have you ever tried any of those? And they might say, yeah, I tried the progressive re- muscle relaxation. I didn't like it. Okay, so should we try one of the other two? And you probably try it in session and then give it, see how they got on, do a little bit of coaching to help them. And then that might be the home practice might be to do that, that breathing exercise every day, for example. Right. It sounds like it's pretty exercise and, and action focused. And, and you were saying it's the follow through on uh, doing those experiments. That's that's uh, particularly valuable or particularly predictive of uh, people people feeling better. Um, what are some other exercises that people might do? Are there other, other classic ones other than, uh, I guess, like yeah, making a mistake and then seeing what happens? Surveys are a good one. For example, someone who thinks they are, that their relationship isn't good enough or they're not a good enough partner they might ask their friends about their relationships and they might discover that uh, actually relationships which they, they've thought of being as perfect turn out, you know, that oh, we don't spend all our time together or we do argue sometimes. Hmm. Now, there is a particular issue there with moral perfectionism hmm. and effective altruists because if you're in an organisation where a lot of your colleagues have got very high moral standards and buy into doing the most good you can then it might be problematic <laughs> doing the survey may not doing the survey yeah, I see. to say you know i, it's I like, don't know yeah, I, do you think that people should yeah, always do the absolutely yeah. best thing and be like well yes obviously <laughs> yeah and of course there right. might be you know people might secretly be kind of not sure that they can reach that standard but they'd be in their shame world, perhaps, putting mm. on that public image of... So you can see you could get into into quite a lot of difficulties where your peers, where your peer group has actually subscribed to the unrelenting, unfeasible standards. Mm. First of all, because you'd be worried about them criticising you, but also one of those techniques like the survey would actually then potentially backfire. Right. I suppose directly backfire, but then you might also have learned what is uh, what is generating or what is caught, making it very difficult for someone well, to change learn, the way that they think. Well, that's true. You learn from any experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so we've got uh, experiments. We've got surveys. There's something called cognitive restructuring is the posh word for it, which is you, working at the level of automatic thoughts, hmm. whereby you notice your automatic thoughts and you ask yourself questions like, is this a fact or is it just an opinion? What would they say in a court of law about it so for, for instance supposing i've had a client session and i think oh that that wasn't a very good session then if i was doing a kind of cognitive restructuring i would say well that's just my opinion it's not it's not a fact and then associated with that there are all these 
lovely thinking traps that therapists have, been, have noticed, such as jumping to conclusions, double standards, which we mentioned earlier, yeah. fortune telling. Uh, what's, what's that? Fortune telling is where I think I know what's going to happen, but actually I'm fortune telling. Okay. Uh, okay. You're, you're making a forecast, but imagining that it's for sure. Yes, exactly. Overgeneralizing. So something's happened in the past. So I assume it's always going to happen in the future. Mm. Uh, black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking, which is a favorite one of perfectionists and moral perfectionists, right. which is, uh, it's exactly what we were talking about earlier about if you haven't got 100%, it's awful. So 90% is as bad as, as, as 0%. So uh, discounting the positive and exaggerating the negative. So you can teach people what, what these thinking traps are and then to perhaps they'll identify with a few of them, sometimes all of them, and then, and then the homework might be to notice them doing it. You know, I'd like, I'd like you to keep a record of when you, when you for instance, you, you jump to conclusions. And then the next stage might be to, to come up with an alternative, which would be to look at the evidence. One of my favorite tools is called STOP, which puts a number of these things together. So sometimes I would introduce it to people in very small stages because it can be a bit overwhelming, but it's very nice because it, it's so STOP is a, an acronym. So you, you stop, you take a moment, take a breath, that's the T. Yeah. And that's a bit of mindfulness. So my, we haven't mentioned mindfulness yet, but that can be a, a part of a part of treatment. Sometimes just in a very basic sense where you just you're just aware. You just notice what's going on. You notice your thinking. So you've stopped. You've taken a moment. You've kind of taken a step back as well. And then you observe. That's the O. Hmm. You observe your thinking, uh, the automatic thoughts, perhaps the assumptions as well. Uh, you also observe your emotions. For instance, supposing, let's go back to that road rage example. You know, So they're driving along. Someone's, I don't know, horned them. And so they might stop take a moment, breathe, which would actually calm them down apart from help them be more kind of a little bit more detached from things, observe their thinking, that person should respect me. And then the next P is to get a different perspective, which might be challenging the assumptions that one's making. Maybe that person is in a hurry because they're on the way to the hospital, for instance, I don't know. Or maybe that person is just having a really bad day. Yeah. So you try and come with a, a more helpful perspective, and there can be quite a lot more to, to unraveling what that helpful perspective might be. And the last P is practicing what works. So you're getting into a problem solving there. So given that realistic perspective, which might be that person could well be having a bad day, or maybe they're on the way to the hospital, or in any case, what's the point in me getting angry? Let dangerous drivers take their accidents elsewhere. Uh, practice what works might be just to say to yourself, I will. Poor chap. Yeah. So I want to think, yeah, think for a moment about um, where this might fail to help or what would be the barrier, I guess, to, to, to this actually um, helping someone uh, get over their perfectionism. I'm imagining if someone did this experiment where, or actually, no, set aside the survey, someone does this experiment where they send an email uh, where, they, where they have errors in it and then see the reaction. Someone who was a, a, 
had a very strong perfectionist mindset, might they not think that, well, okay, no one wrote back uh, to abusing me for the error, but they secretly, or they they thought that I was an idiot probably, and uh, they simply were too polite to say anything. And, you know, the, the consequences will be down the road. Or if you did a survey and asked people directly, uh, you know, do you, do you expect people to always finish things to, to deadline? Do you expect them to be at this standard? And then they say, no, uh, you might think, wow, maybe they're just being polite. They, they, they're refusing to tell the truth and say how badly they feel about me. And that's why CBT is such fun, Rob, because what you do in the session, and this is particularly fun if you've got a, a really engaged client who's really, really into it, you would really try and work out what belief it is you're testing mm. and what will count as evidence. So a bad behaviour experiment would be for the therapist just to say, what I want you to do is to write a, a letter with some mistakes in and that will prove that it doesn't matter. And if anyone's listening who heard me do that, I apologise. Because sometimes when we <laughs> it, push for time, yeah. we, 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 do, we don't necessarily do the thing that we'd recommend yeah. a therapist does. But ideally, what you'd do is you would set up quite a lot of time to set up the experiment. You'd say, what, what, what is the problematic belief? And remember, you've got your map, which in this case, your map of perfectionism, which might have that element, which is other people are going to be very punitive mm. if I don't achieve these very high standards okay and then you might say how do you think we might test that out Hmm. what is there in your life in your life you know what do you do at the moment that assumes that that is true and they might come up with their own example of what of what that might be it might be something else like uh i have a dinner party at the weekend and uh and i'm i'm planning to ask everybody what they want and then go to the most expensive supermarket to buy the ingredients and spend hours cooking. And okay, so it sounds like you're setting yourself quite a high standard for that. Hmm. What if you were to drop that standard a bit? What would that look like? And they might say, well, maybe I'd, uh, hmm, what would I do? Maybe I'd limit it to an hour to doing the, the cooking or, 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 or whatever hmm. it, it might be. But you're right, Rob, you'd have to say, you'd have to ask them, and how will you know whether it's been a success or not? And so you'd actually design what the, what the criteria were as part of the, the experiment. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so I suppose in the case of uh, having an error in the email, that would be good if the person's expectation was that they would get an abusive email back. Exactly. Uh, but maybe not if, if their concern was merely that someone would secretly think, think, think less of them, in which, in which case you might have to come up with some other kind of approach. I guess, yeah, can, can, you, can you imagine what that, what that might be? I suppose this is a case where well, I suppose it might be very difficult if you expect everyone to, to lie to you all the time about what they think. Well, uh, I think then you'd get into... <laughs> the question of whether they were having a prediction that it was then impossible to disprove and what evidence they actually had for it yeah and and i guess if you can well if you can never see any consequence then what does it matter (laughs) on some level Uh, exactly one thing i can imagine you know when i've been um I guess, am I, am, I, am I most depressed? It can feel like the thoughts are coming like very uh, automatically or it, it can be quite hard, I guess, to, to get this, to, to, to do the stop approach and kind of take, you know, just notice that you're feeling negative and understanding why. It feels like you're very stuck in the flow of negative thoughts and you're kind of definitely, you're not, certainly not kind of choosing to have them. Is, is that a potential uh, blocker where it can just be very hard for people to, to step outside the, the, the feelings that they're experiencing? Absolutely. And with severe depression, we might be looking at medication. I mean, so sometimes people, in fact, quite a lot of people, even people that are quite well-informed, are under the impression that medication and uh, an approach like CBT are mutually exclusive alternatives, and they're not at all. Hmm. Sometimes uh, antidepressant will take the edge off their depression enough so you can do the useful therapy. 
And if that's the case, yeah, then that's what 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 you might do. But as I said earlier, also you might need to break down that stop into very small chunks. So you might teach them the ability to notice the thought, maybe write down the thought. Sometimes, again, you get very mixed reactions to that. I'd say about 50-50. Hmm. Half of people say, oh, I wrote down that thought, and you know what? It was so good because I just felt detached from it, and it, was, it wasn't in here anymore. I'm pointing to my head, listeners. Hmm. It was out there. It was on paper. And then you get half people who say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. It's horrible. It makes it real if I write it down. Well, I wrote down that I was complete garbage and it's yeah. just so true. <laughs> so true. And I looked right. at it. and I, like- So you might chunk it up into, into micro skills of noticing the thoughts. You might just teach them the idea that thoughts are not facts. And that's quite a revolution for some people. That what is a thought? It's just some chemicals going on in your brain almost like a film in your head. You know, imagine someone's playing a film and you're watching it. That's mm. just like your thoughts going on. Doesn't have to be true. Could be a load of rubbish. Yeah. And so you just get a little bit of uh, detachment from from the thinking process. Uh, I guess that opens the door to then questioning, or then you can start saying, well, what evidence is there for these Absolutely. These Do you think, is it, is it the case that, People just in, just in, some people just in general in their life, the, the thoughts that they have, they tend to take at, at face value or think that they're likely true? Or is that maybe something that people slip into when they're, you know, most depressed or most anxious or, uh, you know, the, the, the feelings are coming at them particularly aggressively? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really, really good question because there's certainly quite a lot of evidence, not just that how you think affects how you feel, but how you feel affects how you think. Right. So when you're anxious you will tend to think more anxious thoughts and those anxious thoughts will be a lot more credible. And when you're depressed, you will think more depressive thoughts and those depressive thoughts will be much more credible. So that's why it's an important part of treatment, say for anxiety, and this is doubling back to your question about various treatments, which I only gave a very partial answer to, yeah. uh, to do exposure work. And sometimes it's uh, in the session, in vivo exposure work, where you're actually experiencing the thing you're anxious about. So something that we treat quite a lot in, uh, I treat quite a lot in the NHS, is obsessive compulsive disorder. Hmm. I haven't treated it amongst many effective altruists. I don't know, don't know why that is. Yeah. Uh, interestingly. So obsessive compulsive disorder can take various forms. It might be someone who cleans a lot, and they, they might also have an intrusive thought, which is the house will burn down. And then the response would be to do a lot of checking. They would check uh, all of the electric sockets to check they're all turned off. And then another doubt would creep in and they'd have a kind of better safe than sorry attitude. And then say, let's check them another time. Then they go back in their bed and worry again and check it. You know, I mean, we've all done that to some extent. Not not that exactly, but we we probably, you know, particularly if we're stressed, this is an example of what you're saying. You know, if if we're on holiday, we think, God, have I I shut that window? And then sometimes we might even get halfway to the station and go back to check we lock the door. So when we're anxious, we tend to think that more. But people with OCD, they get into a real horrible pattern of having those intrusive thoughts and then doing the compulsive behaviours. And the problem is that those compulsive behaviours are then rewarded because it reduces the anxiety, and so you can almost get addicted to them. Now, the reason that I was mentioning that OCD is that you draw out the map, 
you would say, okay, what's your intrusive thought? That causes you anxiety. And then you do the compulsive behavior, which then relieves it. And then you might even get people to see that the intrusive thought is just a thought and it's probably not true. And you might get them to see, in theory, that they don't need to do the compulsive behavior. And that's what you would do as the first step of therapy. But you ain't really crack the OCD until they are able to resist the temptation to do the compulsion when they're really triggered. So, but the way now I, I just work remotely, I just mm-hmm. work by Zoom. But before the pandemic, I remember being uh, in, uh, it's actually a doctor's surgery I worked in in one particular setting, and this person was worried about dirt. So we went outside and, you know, she got her hands full of mud and then normally she would spend hours washing repetitively, sometimes, you know, with bleach until they were all kind of sore. So, but this time she just washed once and then sat with the discomfort. And so that is something called exposure. Actually, it's called ERP. It's exposure. And then you prevent the response. The normal Mm. response would be the compulsion. Mm. Uh, you do the exposure and then you don't have You don't the do the compulsion. Well, and you, then you, gradually you yeah, break the You cycle. want to do it, hmm. but you, you tolerate the distress. And the more you do it, the easier it is to tolerate the distress. So I think that answers your question about the feeling causing the thinking and, yeah. the, and the tool that you need to do, which is uh, to generate the discomfort, either in the session or outside the session, to check that they can cope with, with it in practice and not in theory. There's all kinds of fun stuff going on there. If we think about, you know, the neocortex and and parts of the brain like the amygdala, it's probably the the, the neocortex doing the the stop, you know, the the cognitive restructuring, and then it's probably the exposure work that's working more on the the amygdala, reducing those very automatic fear responses. Yeah. A couple of uh, things to follow up on that. Because one thing I've heard is that exposure therapy for phobias and these kinds of, uh, yeah, uh, recurrent uh, habits or obsessive behaviors is very successful, or at least with phobias, as I understand it. If, you people, can almost, yeah. if people do it. If people do it, I see. Yes. But, but if people do follow through consistently yes. on the treatment, then the cure rates are extremely high. Yes. Uh, so that, I guess that's something that people should know. <laughs> yeah. if, if you have something that can be treated with exposure therapy, you should go for it, because this is one of the things we feel, have in mental health Feel that the fear and do the therapy. Yeah. So we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder here. And I, there's this other condition that I've heard of called, called scrupulosity, which is... Uh, I think superficially is a bit similar to moral perfectionism in that people with scrupulosity, they have particular concerns about things that they could do that are wrong, like misleading someone or not being polite to people or you know charging someone the wrong amount by accident. Uh, and then they go through these cycles of constantly checking and constantly being worried that they might commit this kind of uh, infraction. But it seems different to from moral perfectionism to me i guess one of the reasons is that the things that they're concerned about are often very minor uh moral infractions if if, if, even if you would regard them as moral issues at all Uh, so they seem like somewhat more quirky concerns than someone wanting to perform uh, at a high standard at work but but maybe that's just my view on it i'm not an expert in, in that but i think i would understand it as being a subtype of ocd so there's something which i work with a lot called generalized anxiety disorder Mm. or gad which is someone who is concerned about normal worries, but they they over worry, you know. So we all might have concerns about I don't know health or finance or relationships. That's normal, mm. but the person with generalized anxiety disorder would be worrying excessively and about too many things. Mm. So that is worry. That is kind of a kind of normal type of worry, 
but just done excessively. Someone with OCD is often worried about slightly bizarre, sometimes bizarre, or sometimes just unusual things, like the house burning down. We're not all worried about the house burning down all the time. Yeah. So I'm thinking that what, what you're talking about there with scrupulosity sounds a bit the same, that it's not perfectionism would be kind of the things that we're all concerned about. Mm. You know, are we achieving well? Are we, are, are we being a good person? Well, if we're a bit of altruist, we'll certainly be worried about that. Yeah. Uh, but someone with this dysfunctional perfectionism will be, will be uh, having that excessive standard or the inflexible standard and overrate the extent to which people will be critical unless they're in an environment where they really are critical, mm -hmm. etc. Whereas I think this scrupulosity sounds more like someone who has an obsessive worry right. about something. So they have a particular worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offend someone or I'm going to say the wrong thing. And then they might well uh, do quite a bit of worrying, but then they might also have some compulsion i mean what would the compulsion yeah, be I in that case would well it be i think apologizing or checking or yeah the case of scrupulosity that really uh, stood out in my mind was it was a patient who uh, was thought that it was very very morally important um or like yeah incredibly important socially to greet everyone at the office like politely uh uh, and that might be fine if you're in an office of three people. But this this person ended up in a leadership role in an organization of hundreds. So there was hundreds of people in the office. And it was massively interfering with their uh, ability to do their job because they would want to greet, like go around the office um, in the morning greeting everyone and, and, you know, having some polite interaction with them. Uh, and, and I guess... So that, so that is quite, I think to me, that is quite quirky uh, to the point where I think that's not a concern that most people have, that they should uh, should greet everyone in the building. And when they come I would in. treat that like OCD, yeah. which is to say you have a, a thought or an intrusive thought that is feels very alive to you, but actually it's not realistic, it's not helpful. So what you've got to learn to do is ignore it. Mm. Ignore it. Until it uh, quietens and down. And then a bit. eventually it will quiet down. So we'd yeah. probably have some fun. I don't know how you how you do that. You know, if you were, I guess if you were doing a Zoom session with them, they could, you could actually have people going into the office and then not greeting. I don't know, but it yeah. would, or that could be the homework. I expect. Yeah, another thing I was going to follow up on is I, I always feel very cautious about uh, kind of having some smug attitude towards people uh, people having a mental health issue uh, as if they're thinking so differently than than everyone else. I think particularly with the, in, in the case where you know people getting stuck in their thoughts and just treating them taking them at face value as if they're 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 true. I think that is how most of us go about our day almost all the time. That is kind of how we're designed to work. It's just we have thoughts and then we kind of we, we don't always want to step into this metacognition of thinking, well, I have this particular view of how this room is, but that could be wrong. It's just my subjective perspective. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why we're not designed to do that. Maybe Maybe it's just too it's too much mental work, uh, and in fact, like on a moment to moment basis, most of the time it's fine to just be in in your thoughts in the in the flow of it without uh, deeply questioning it. But I think you know I, we could surely all relate to um, not <laughs> not maybe doing enough questioning of your of your attitudes towards things or your perception of things, uh, and often that's fine. But then at other times it can be very problematic. And to bring a somewhat theoretical dimension to that, I love thinking fast and slow and Kahneman, Tversky, and actually Robert Wright, Why Buddhism is True, would also have a kind of similar idea. I mean, the idea is there in, in, in the culture quite a lot. But this, the idea would be something like our brains are designed for prehistoric times. Mm. If you think of all the generations that happened in prehistory where there were tribes of, you know, small groups of people and there were saber-toothed tigers out there. And so we are primed to be very anxious because the people who weren't so anxious wouldn't survive long enough to have children. Mm. So our genes are going to be primed to, to uh, have more 
anxiety than is helpful these days when there aren't saber-toothed tigers. Mm. And also stuff to do with uh, being very, very careful how you get on with those close to you, because if you were shunned by that community, you would you would starve to death. So we have, and this is, you mentioned, you know, uh, there, there are several therapy modalities that I, I'm informed by, and CBT would be the top one. There's also something called compassion-focused therapy, which I've trained in and which I, I love using. And a phrase they have there is that we have tricky brains. We have tricky brains. And it's not our fault that we have tricky brains, but it is our responsibility to do something about it. So there we are. We, we've kind of, we've got these brains that are designed for the Stone Ages. And, and we, you know, that's what we've got. And another aspect, apart from, you know, what, what I was saying about anxiety and and. I guess, shame and being very concerned about how we're evaluated by other people is this kind of thinking fast and slow that it makes a lot of sense to have, to be able to do stuff on autopilot to save uh, mental e- energy. And also because if you're living in the world of saber-toothed tigers, you don't really want that. <laughs> oh, what is that sound? Yeah. Oh, I think that might be something dangerous. Oh dear, I've just been eaten. Yeah. You know, it needs to be instinctive. Mm. So it's very easy to see how that thinking fast would be our, our default mode. Default mode, mm. exactly. And the thinking slow, all that all that kind of lovely stuff the human brain can do that other brains can't do, takes a lot of energy and and it's slower. So it's not necessarily something that we that we necessarily want to do that that often yeah. you know if you're driving or something you know you're just on autopilot the whole yeah. time so it's perfectly normal and in fact even beneficial a lot of the time to be in a, and joshua green calls it i think a automatic mode and manual mode to be in moral tribes you know i think he's got the analogy of a, of a camera but i, I sometimes mm. think of it as a car but anyway whatever it's it's uh it's good that we've got that automatic mode but sometimes it's the wrong tool but for the job. A, sometimes it's the wrong tool for the job mm. because it's very crude and fast. But sadly, because it was designed for the prehistoric times, actually, it very often will be the wrong tool for the right. job or it'll be the wrong... Because the job has changed. Or it will give us the wrong intuitions or the wrong impulses or the wrong urges. And I mean, there's lots of uh, literature these days about food and how it's a racket, really, that, you know, that, that we're being addicked we you know, we're be, you know, there's oh. advertising of sugars, and then we I get see. addicted to it. Our intuitions are that we need to get very high calorie foods into us because yes. we're at risk of starvation. Whereas, yes. the, yeah, and the situation has changed so massively now, that's a very harmful kind of automatic response to have to food, uh, because, in part perversely, because we've changed the environment around us in a way that makes that destructive. Exactly. Yeah. And also, but part of our environment now is the whole food industry and advertising industry, which is then causing us to probably get addicted to sugar, which in any case, our our whole physiology has evolved to to crave it because in prehistoric times, that was what we needed because food wasn't so plentiful. Mm. So we have tricky brains. And another helpful idea, I think, is that mental health is a continuum. So a lot of these ideas that I'm talking about for people that may have clinical levels of depression, anxiety, uh, perfectionism, uh, would apply to the general population, but just to a lesser degree, which fortunately means that you can use the same techniques very often, even if you've got a very mild subclinical issue. Yeah. It goes to me that there's there's maybe two ways that one might um, approach 
this perfectionist mindset or two ways that one might try to, to challenge it. One, which it sounds like is the thing that you're most often uh, approaching uh, people with is to say, this is very self-undermining. So the thing that you're thinking about is that you how you have to reach these incredibly high standards of performance at all at all times. Uh, and thinking that way has led you to now, you know, not be able to go to work because because uh, of because you're feeling so negative, uh, you know, to, to struggle to, to get things done. I guess another angle that someone might take would be to say, well, even if this was working, or you know, even if this was kind of functional, this is a cruel way to treat yourself, or this is the wrong mentality to have uh, about life because it's just too harsh, it's too it's too brutal, it's too it's too inflexible. So to to challenge it on on that sort of grounds, yeah, it's, it sounds like mostly uh, the thing that happens in these sessions is people coming to appreciate the, the ways in which the way that they're thinking is not even causing them to achieve their superficial goals. Do things ever go to a deeper level of uh, getting people to reflect on whether this really is the philosophy or the values that they want to express towards themselves? A couple of answers to that. One is that part of the protocol for perfectionism would include looking at values. And certainly a very nice thing you can do is to draw a little circle and then have little sections which would have all the things that might make up a good life, which might be things like work, being a good person, having a good intimate relationship, having good friends, uh, having good hobbies, relaxation. And then you might say, what percentage would you say that you devote to those things? Mm. And what percentage do you think they're important? And very often there'll be a discrepancy. So people might say, well, of course, family or partner is most important. But then in terms of where they put their effort, it might be 80% work. And you'll notice, bearing in mind what I said earlier about Socratic questioning or guided discovery, that the client is finding that out for themselves rather than telling them. So that is definitely the preferred approach to helping them make their own discovery. Gosh, yeah, what's going on? I, I, I said that, my partner's the most important person to me, and yet I'm, I'm devoting seventy percent of my efforts, and I've just cancelled that, that that dinner I was meant to go with them because I've got that important presentation tomorrow. And mm, no wonder, no wonder they were upset with me. So you know, you yeah. can you can get them to to see that there is a problem with their balance, and that's generally the way we'd go with perfectionism. Uh, perhaps we'll go into the moral perfectionism bit thing a bit a bit later, but yeah. but with the general clinical perfectionism part of the CBT protocol, but it comes quite late on. It's not mm. the first thing you would do, would be to say, let's have a look at, you know, the pie chart of, of, of your values, how you're actually living your life, and do you want to recalibrate a bit? And what would that look like? And then there might be another experiment whereby next week you work a bit less hours or you ban yourself from working you ban yourself from from looking at your phone mm. during the weekend, your mm. work phone during the weekend, or, or whatever. So they actually go quite hand in hand because you have to have a different take on it. You have to realise that it's actually quite problematic, this perfectionist cycle you've got into, before you'd be willing to try out that experiment. If you if you go straight on to the values stuff, then you might, I think, reach have quite a lot of resistance. Yeah. There's, there's a tension in counselling or therapy of this kind, it seems, where uh, so you don't want to tell your patients or your clients what to what to think because that would be, uh, well, I mean, well, one, one thing is it, is it might not work because obviously just lecturing people doesn't tend to go down super well. Uh, at the same time, of course, you do have kind of ideas or conclusions that you're kind of expecting or hoping that they that they might reach. And it seems like 
in order to avoid this just being some uh, a sort of con where it's, you're, you're, you're leading people to particular predetermined conclusions and that you and you wouldn't accept things otherwise, you, you have to actually embody the attitude of what the person might say. Well, no, I think that work is ninety percent important, and family and friends and being nice don't matter. Uh, and if that was what came out of their analysis of their own values, you'd be like, okay, well, we're just going to work with that, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to accept that uh, because it's not my place to to tell you what to think or what to what to value. Uh, yeah, do you understand the, the tension I'm gesturing at? Yeah. So what what do you think is the number one quality that yeah. is needed by CBT therapists? <laughs> Which could be one of those examples of a leading question, but mm. I generally don't know what you're going to say. Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like the thing that would be very useful uh, in this case is not uh, not having too strong views about like what values everyone else ought to have or how everyone else ought to live. Yeah, and in general, curiosity. Curiosity. Yes. Curiosity is a is a really helpful feature. But you're absolutely right. There is a tension. And again, particularly when we're short of time as therapists Mm. and we see someone in real distress, Mm. we really want to help them. And we think we know what the answer is. Maybe we've seen someone like them before and our pattern matching, Mm. thinking fast says, oh, they're just like client X. That client X was really helped by uh, telling them to socialize more. So let's tell them to socialize more. But it may be that this person is depressed because the people they're socialising with are really toxic and causing the problem. Right, right. So it really is important to slow down mm. and be curious. And, and that's what the formulation is about, the, the, that, that map. You know, we've got a general map, but what, what is going on for this person? And when it comes round to values, yeah, I mean, as well as it being counterproductive, there's also an ethical concern that as mm. a therapist we're trained not to just impose our values, Yeah, it would be somewhat problematic for me to just challenge someone's ethical views because I disagreed with them Yeah, or I thought they were wrong. Or at least not unless they invited you or that's what they came to therapy for. Sure. Uh, but even then it would be quite problematic if they said, Tim, what do you think? Because then you're being set up as some kind of guru when right, actually, yeah. you know, my views might be wrong. So one has to be a little bit cautious in that. And I think the best approach is is that kind of guided discovery. There's something else called values clarification which is something that actually comes from education. And there might be people listening who, who did this at school where they'd be asked various thought experiments like, what would be your ideal day? And uh, if, you get, if you're a bit older, the question might be, you know, what would you like uh, written on your gravestone or what would you like people to say, say about you on your retirement party? Mm, uh, mm. All those kind of questions. Uh, or I, I sometimes ask people, uh, what was one of the best days in your life? And then why was it? So I might answer, and I have to be careful because my daughter might be listening, but one of my, okay, I can do both actually. Uh, Two great days. I was going to say, first of all, it was when my son was born, who's my Mm. first child. And I I remember being really happy. Mm. Uh, Another one was when my daughter was born and uh, she was in my wife's arms and crying like mad. Mm. And then she was passed to me and stopped crying. (laughs) So I could take both of those as as wonderful moments. And then, so what we would do in values clarification is then you would say to me, so Tim, why was that day when when your son was born such a great day? And I would say, well, it was... Hmm. I got so much work done. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was uh, it was love. Yeah, it was just you know there was this feeling, and I, it was like really feeling love. Or it might be uh, well, that would be one of the answers. It might be a sense of achievement. You know, I've, I'm I'm there. I've done it. I've done something that I think was think was important. It may be relief because hmm. he, he seemed to be healthy and and that, and my wife was safe as well. You know, so, right. so there'd be all of those kind of things. And with my daughter, it would it would be kind of a real connection with her 
at that moment, mm. you know, and a sense that I could be of help to her. So we'd say that those are very specific things that I valued at that instant. But then you can ask, well, does that generalize? Are those things that are in generally of value to you? So in my case, would it be love and achievement and the well-being of those that I, I love uh, and close connection? I say, yes, of course it is. Gosh, isn't that interesting? Because mm-hmm. that, you know, by pinpointing a time or even a moment that, that I, I say is a high point, we've uncovered some values. And so that would be values. And there are a whole host of other values clarifications you can do. But it's not just clarifying the values. It's then saying, okay, Tim, so let's look at your life now. How much are you living those values? What's the discrepancy between what you think is important and actually what you're doing with your life? And what changes might there need to be? And I might say, truthfully now, if we're talking about my daughter, Hmm. who is now 21, and and abroad at the moment, and Hmm. she's just gone abroad on a, a... a trip a year probably a year abroad so i'm not she's not in my arms mm. and and she's you know i don't know what's happening to her now so it might be a sign that uh let's give her a, a zoom call or, mm. or whatsapp call over the weekend and and really take a close interest in her for example yeah Okay, let's switch on to a slightly different angle on this. I suppose I can imagine some listeners being a little bit frustrated with the conversation so far because we're we're placing all of the responsibility for fixing this issue on the people who have this mentality and, and maybe are struggling with it or people who are dealing with perfectionism as a, as a challenge in life. But you could turn this around and say, well, you know, Rob, 80,000 hours, like, aren't you the way that you talk about all of these things and the messages that you promote – might be well be contributing or causing or you know stimulating people to to form this kind of attitude towards themselves and the world and, and their responsibilities, um, and shouldn't you also think about what, what you could do differently to avoid prompting this? Um, we're happy we're doing this episode in part because we definitely have noticed that uh, among people who listen to this show or people who are interested in our careers advice, you know, having very high inflexible standards and shame when uh, someone fails to meet their, their own high standards is, uh, I think, definitely more more common among that that group than than the population at large. Although, of course, it's like certainly not not confined just to people who are into effective altruism or eighty thousand hours. To what extent we're causing it, I'm, I'm a little bit unsure because uh, there's this other there's another phenomenon which is that people who already think that way are extremely drawn towards the way that we write about, about careers and about, about ethics, there's going to be a selection effect as well as potentially uh, causing it. But also, in as much as we're causing it, we, we definitely would want to uh, tamp that down. Do, do you have any advice for kind of me or um, 80,000 Hours or I, I guess actually listeners at large who, in the way that they speak or think, might be generating this among people they know? Right. Well, I'm not going to presume to be an expert in what goes on at 80,000 Hours or in the effective altruism community in general. First thing, I need to make that re- re- really clear because yeah. i'm i'm seeing a, a bias sample aren't i of people who are presenting with issues so i don't know i'd be really interested actually in kind of well-being questionnaires amongst the effective altruism i know there's, there's one be done in spain i think but mm. i'd be really interested in that being expanded because on the one hand you'd expect effective altruists to have a higher mental well-being i think because I mean, people working, say, for an effective altruist movement, like, mm. say, in 80,000 hours, I'd expect them to have a higher well-being because they, are, in general, like the people they're working with. So when I left university, I worked for an organisation called Logica, which was a, 
a bit like being at university but getting paid for it okay. because you're with bright people uh, people you like to socialize with and i and, and, and i imagine that 80 sounds can be a bit like that where you know so you've got a nice peer group you've you've got a common interest there's meaning to your life yeah. you might be being stretched so mm-hmm. so there's lots of 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 indicators where you think okay these people are going to are going to be flourishing but to answer your question after all those caveats i've made yeah what concerns me potentially is that idea of doing the most good and as that as a moral imperative uh, kind of a very crude act utilitarianism because if that is kind of the the dictate from on high or thought to be the dictate from on high mm. i'm sure it isn't but uh that you've got to do the most good in every moment then you're setting up for moral perfectionism because it's unpredictable, first of all, in terms of what the consequences will be of what mm. you do. And also, coming back to that old brain, new brain thing, I think the way that we're designed as human beings, we're going to favour ourselves to some extent. We're going to favour those nearest and dearest, as the expression goes, mm. to us. So even if logically we should be totally impartial, there's going to be a bit of our brain that rebels against that, I suspect. Yeah. So having it as an imperative to do the most good you can all the time, even if that isn't actually what is meant, I think some people might take it to be that. And, you know, particularly maybe they have this parental message, you know, that Mm. you've got to achieve the most, then that is potentially makes them very vulnerable. And then if there are people in the organization coming back to that mythical survey we spoke about mm. who would who would answer oh you're a terrible person because you did such and such or didn't do such and such uh then that's not going to be great either and I, I, again i don't yeah, know to what completely. extent those you know i certainly hear clients fearing that that might be the case but mm. i don't know to what extent that really is the case uh, yeah i don't think it is true uh, i mean at least well i can only speak for eighty thousand hours but mm. i think if you did a survey like that you'd find that everyone is extremely tolerant of the lifestyles that other people want to want to lead i mean even people who do nothing to improve the world to be honest are perfectly accepted as uh friends and uh um i i think there's a perception that there'll be enormous amounts of moral judgment and i'm sure that that, that i'm sure that's true of some people but mm. uh at least i don't know i I have friends out there who have virtually no interest in altruism or doing good. And to be honest, it doesn't bother me. It almost doesn't bother me to a kind of remarkable degree. But their friends, what about if they were working for 80,000 hours? So if you had a colleague who, well, I mean, I suppose I've learned from all of the experience with with these issues that in general, it's extremely counterproductive to have a mentality that you always have to be like giving the absolute maximum uh, to work. So I guess I suppose I know on the kind of pragmatic grounds, uh, I think it's foolish to have these kinds of standards, certainly among uh, a group of people who are already quite inclined towards altruism and, per- and perfectionism to, to start with. It's like it's just throwing too much fuel on a fire that's already well, burning exactly. perfectly healthily. On top of that, just just speaking for myself, I no longer have the energy I feel for like massive amounts of moral judgment about uh, people's people's work. I just have other things going on. And I, I guess it's not, I don't find it that fulfilling or satisfying to think about ways that other people are failing morally anymore. I think maybe like, 15 years ago, uh, I had like more fire in my belly about this. Uh, not, not that I was ever super judgmental, but yeah, I, I guess there's just interpersonal variation on how agreeable you are and, and how much you think about this. Exactly. So as I said, most of the people I've, I've encountered as clients are very n- lovely people and haven't got that OCD personality where they're, in, they're insisting other people have the, mm. have the high standards. My worry, would, my worry would, would be that it's just there in the, 
in the ethos, as it, as it were, that as a kind of yeah. oh, that's what we think is expected of us. That would be one thing with regards to careers advice. And again, I actually don't know what you say to people that come for careers advice. Yeah, but if it was hypothetically. I've, I've done this little calculation and this is the job where you do the most good mm. and this is what you've got to do, that would worry me because the way I, I like to think of it is there's a, a kind of Venn diagrams of uh, a job that you can have a high impact in, a job that you're good at, a job that you would actually enjoy and find personally satisfying and a job that would pay the bills. So those four, four things. Mm. And I think you want the bullseye rather than doing a job that because it's the one we've had the most impact and you hate it yeah uh, or, or 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 it doesn't pay any of the bills you need now, and I, again i don't know the type of advice that, that you give but i would be concerned if it was too, if it was too prescriptive too prescriptive and, and too too much just discounting you know oh you might not enjoy it but you've got a mm. moral imperative to to do good yeah i mean i i think in practice if people got one-on-one advising or they read the website carefully they would find that this kind of personal fit and the importance of you know enjoying what you do and having a holistically good life is, is emphasized quite a lot and uh, I, I would be shocked and a, and a bit dismayed if anyone had a one-on-one session where, where they were ever told like here's the job that you should definitely uh take i suppose maybe you would get uh, you know this is probably the job or this might be the job that is highest impact but you know you have to consider all of these different other factors as well it's extremely hard to have a message that is suitable and beneficial for everyone, given the enormously different starting points that that people are coming from. So, part of our message is about doing you know doing the most good, and you, you can have a really big impact with your career. That's partly orientated at people who have never thought about this at all, and maybe are not really aspiring necessarily to do to, to help people at all w- w- with their career. But of course, the same message falls on the same ears of people who are already very concerned about how much good they're going to do and already have extremely high expectations about what they might accomplish in, in their career. Uh, and for them, it's like it's too much. It's it's you're you're overloading someone with particular thoughts that uh, that are they've already got a good level or maybe they already have uh, have too much of it whereas there's other people potentially who need to i guess in our view at least should think about this more because they're currently not thinking about it almost at all yeah that that would be my model that um it's just extremely hard to have a message that is beneficial to everyone and doesn't doesn't backfire in some cases i think that's right i think it's it's almost like i'm thinking of a a, a temperature gauge and you know uh, there'll be someone at this end who need to go in that direction there's someone at that end that actually may need to go in that direction yeah and if you're giving whatever general message you're giving it's if it's taken too literally or people think it's about them uh, or they misread it or misunderstand it then it, it could backfire yeah one thing I might add before you go on is just that uh, I waste an ungodly amount of time and I spend lots of time just doing stuff that I enjoy that I don't think makes the world a better place necessarily, uh, except by making me happy. And I waste lots of, well, I spend lots of money on myself and I don't feel guilty about it at all. And my colleagues seem completely fine with this. So I've never gotten a hard time from anyone. <laughs> so I suppose, if yeah, if as a listener, your perception was that uh, if you did that, I would think negatively of you or that, you know, my colleague, you know, you wouldn't, working 80,000 hours would be terrible because everyone would just be breathing down your neck all the time about how you're not not the ideal moral person uh i think at least that 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 perception is is, is not the case though i know that uh that that won't necessarily make a you know so <laughs> make everyone feel uh, completely better yeah it's good to get that message across yeah. i think one other thing that i have uh come to think about this over the years is there's many big benefits to having friends who share your you know moral convictions or your passions about changing the world or you know your, your political outlook your environmental concerns and so on 
But I think this is one of the ways that that isn't beneficial, that it can actually be harmful. Because if, if you know, if, if many of your friends, your colleagues, uh, you know, all of the people you spend your time with all share your particular view on what people ought to do, now you're just getting this message all the time. You're, it's not just your views, but you start getting the social reinforcement but that this is the way you ought to live. And there's this very general uh, phenomenon in psychology called extremization, which is if you get a bunch of people who all have a particular view and you get them to talk to one another, they almost always come away with a more extreme view than what they started with. Um, and you can just kind of see this playing out over time in basically all social groups, uh, you know, even just social circles who happen to by chance, have come in with particular opinions. Although there's, you know, yeah, huge benefits to being able to hang out with people who have common interests and talk about the same things all the time and work on projects together. If you're someone who's likely or, you know, at risk, I guess you might say, of having extremely high inflexible standards and uh, moral convictions, then uh, you might want to, might want to consider uh, whether you do want to uh, put so many of your social eggs in, in one basket because I think this is one of the things that uh, if the fire is already burning bright, then this adds more fuel onto it. Exactly. Early on when you're um, dealing with a, a, a new client, are there any uh, things that you want to, any questions you want to ask in order to uh, distinguish whether what's going on might not be perfectionism, uh, that there might be a, a different issue at play? Yeah. So very often we'll get referrals from a GP when I'm, when I'm working in the NHS and when I'm working in private practice, I, I would ask people about physical problems, medication, mental health history. Obviously, if one's interested in perfectionism, it's quite, there's a bit of a trap there of seeing perfectionism everywhere. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, but so uh, it's curiosity again and mm. an, an open mindedness and, and, and thoroughness as well. And just to give a, a, a classic example of that would be a disorder that we haven't mentioned so far today is panic attacks. And someone who's suffering from panic disorder. Sometimes one version of it is they experience their heart beating irregularly or really fast. Mm. So they feel anxious. They then have a catastrophic thought that they're having a heart attack. So what do you think happens to their anxiety? Well, <laughs> it goes through the roof, right? And then, of course, the, 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 the heart beating fast is a symptom of anxiety. Yeah. So what happens to their heart, it races faster. Mm. What happens to the credibility of their belief that they're having a heart attack? Well, it goes up, what happens to anxiety? And this happens very quickly. I and see. it's not like, you know, it's all, oh, I'm having that thought. Oh, having this. And so that's what a panic attack is. Mm. And so the treatment for panic disorder includes mapping out the cycle and distinguishing the, the symptoms that they think are a heart attack from, you know, actually these are just symptoms of anxiety. And so going into those situations... Uh, knowing that those are just symptoms of anxiety and they don't need to be concerned about them. Now, that's all very well and good, as long as you know that they're not really having a heart attack. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> because well, if they're having a heart attack, what we want to do is to rush off to A&E. Right, yeah. Uh, so not those, start a CBT workshop. And not, and not say, oh, nothing's going here. I don't need to be worried about it. Hmm. Uh, so in those cases, one has to uh, actually get to a cardiologist maybe to well, so, so at least a, at least a gp as to mm. what's going on and then hopefully they'll have had their tests and I if see. they come back and say there is nothing wrong with their heart then you've got the evidence and they've got the evidence as well kind of a classic thing that you often want to uh, detect is um whether someone has thyroid issues right or there's a whole lot of physical um physical illnesses that can uh, present as mental health issues where i guess if someone has too much thyroid hormone they become anxious and if they have too little they they become depressed am i remembering that right 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that there can be physiological things that, that present as if they were in the same way as if they might be anxiety or depression issues, and then you're targeting the wrong thing. So, yeah, it's, it's a good idea to get the, the physical side yeah. checked out as yeah. well. Also, increasingly, there seem to be a num number of people who come who are neurodiverse and perhaps with ADHD or autism. And uh, ADHD, again, is, is, is something that can manifest itself as anxiety or low self-esteem or in all kinds of ways. But it's, uh, it doesn't mean you can't do the psychological treatment, but you have to take into account that they might also need to see a, a specialist to help them mm. work with their, their, their ADHD. Okay, let's let's push on from perfectionism now. Um, yeah, you told me earlier this week that the other big cluster of challenges you find people trying to that you find people trying to do a lot of good with their uh, career, kind of uh, dealing with is um, low self esteem and imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, what does that look like in practice? So, low self esteem is a quite a. There's been quite a lot of research on low self esteem and and a, a quite a well well tried and tested CBT protocol. For helping with it and Melanie Fennell is the the person most associated with that and it tends to go like this it's someone who often because of some adversities in childhood gets the message that they are not good enough and that might have various flavors hmm. such as I am unacceptable I am stupid I am unlovable I am ugly I am unintelligent or, or whatever but basically, I am not good enough. And they might have that message because maybe they were they were a bit different or maybe they had uh, parents or teachers that were just very mean to them, uh, might have been bullied. So they grow up really believing in their kind of really felt sense often of not being good enough. And then what happens to them? Well, they try and get by even though they think they're not good enough. So they tend to adopt certain rules for living, which might be people-pleasing, because I'm not good enough, but maybe if I'm really nice to people, mm. they will they'll accept, they'll me. accept me. It might be uh, avoiding particular challenges, because I don't want to set myself up for failure. Mm. What's the point? I've been told I'm useless, so what's the point in going for that job? Uh, it might be worrying, because if I worry then I might be able to stop this bad thing happening to me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just do something without thinking about it because I'm not good enough, so I need to think really carefully before I do stuff that other people do. Now, those things uh, might well be problematic. So although they do them for good reason, because they're, to, they're compensatory strategies, if you like, because they think they're not good enough. So if they worry, then they're going to have a lot of anxiety. If they people please, then they're not going to get in very satisfying relationships and their needs might not be fulfilled. Or people won't just find out that they need help. You know, if, if they say, uh, oh, that's fine with me and it isn't, then they might set themselves up for failure. You know, if, if you've got someone who works for you and they're a people pleaser, then they're going to say yes to everything mm. when they might mm. mean no. So that's a bit of a problem, potentially. Or I guess overcommit to stuff. Uh, overcommit yeah. to stuff, exactly. Uh, oh, no, and they also might just avoid lots of opportunities for success. You know, they just like, say no to, to good things. So someone with low self-esteem, for good reason, in their own kind of belief system, 
uh, does all these protective strategies, which will cause anxiety and also might self-sabotage. So there's kind of two, uh, two paths that they go down. And then there might be a trigger situation, like uh, they have to do a presentation or something. And, uh, and then because they think they're not good enough, they will get all kinds of anxious. So they might be in a world of anxiety a lot of the time. Hmm. And then if they self-sabotaged, say, by uh, worrying before the presentation, or for some people it might be drinking or taking drugs or whatever, because they just want to avoid this horrible feeling of, of being anxious, uh, then guess what happened? They might actually not do the task very well. Right. Yeah. They might, in a worst case scenario, not even turn up for the presentation because mm -hmm. they, they haven't prepared for it. And then what will happen is they will go to the other part of the, the other path, which is depression. So when you fear that you're going to be exposed to be not good enough, you feel anxiety. And then when you feel that that has been the case, uh, some people might well be very harsh self-critics and say, you idiot, why did I even agree to, 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 to doing that presentation? Mm. I know that I knew it would end in tears. I've got to learn not to, not to do that. I'm, such a, I'm so stupid. And so they would uh, then ruminate, which is uh, uh, another big issue that in CBT we can help people with, which is over... So worrying is overthinking about the future. Rumination is overthinking about the past, mm. going over in your head. Why did I do that? Why, all the bad things that have happened to you. How are you going to feel if you do that? Terrible. We talked earlier about shame. Shame might come into it, which would mean you might, you know, feel I'm just I'm just unacceptable as a person. So the the original core belief you had, I'm not good enough, is actually uh, reinforced because either you're uh, self-sabotaging, which I don't really like that, that, that expression, but people use it a lot. It's actually you're doing stuff that makes, the, makes it appear to be true or mm. it actually is true, or else you're uh, avoiding challenges, which means it's never falsified. So if you're people-pleasing, then you might say, yes, they did agree to me going out on that social occasion, but that's only because I'm so nice to them when actually they might have done so even if you were just your normal self. Does mm. that make sense? Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's kind of like, it means you never find out that you are good enough. So that's why this self-esteem is another vicious cycle. Yeah. Because it can just, even though, you know, it's a bit of a puzzle otherwise. You know, see a parent when, when you were, you know, a kid told you weren't good enough, but you've had all these, all these you know, you're 40 now, you know. Yeah. Uh, why, why do you <laughs> still you think enough? that? Yeah. Well, actually, it's because you're looking at, at the world as if this belief is 100% true and you're interpreting everything as if it is true and you're doing stuff that actually uh, sometimes makes it true. So any contrary evidence uh, or in any specific instance, you, dis you disqualify it and say, well, uh, yeah, yeah, wow, here's yeah. the alternative reason why. Yeah, really they only accepted me because I was nice to them. I see, yeah. That kind of thing. It's interesting. Yeah, but, so both of these cases, perfectionism and low self-esteem, it seems like the key issue is that you set up a positive feedback loop within yes. your like emotional system where, yes. okay, so someone with low self-esteem, so long as they're doing great at work and people are accepting them, then maybe they can get by. But then yes. when something goes wrong, when actually they do perform, you know, <laughs> you know maybe you know, for, the, for the first time in a while, they do a really bad job at something, then they're going to feel terrible because people might actually be annoyed with them and that's going to make them unable to do the next thing. And then you've, they just fall into a, into a hole. Exactly. So people with low self-esteem, they might very often have periods where they, they seem to be okay, although they generally won't be 
flourishing as much as they would be otherwise. But they will also be prone to periods of anxiety and depression, as can people with with clinical perfectionism. Because it's a bit of a puzzle as to why people are both anxious and depressed at various times. But Mm. both of these these possibilities uh, explain it. Yeah. It suggests that one of the core... Uh, ways that you might try to have more robust um, mental health is to set up the exact reverse system where you need to have like negative feedback loops where if you feel bad, then you need to do uh, like lower your standards, for example, and, and be like far more nice to yourself, like be particularly uh, compassionate and particularly, uh, what's the term, accommodating of yourself in those times in order to like lift yourself back up. And maybe to some degree the reverse, you know, when you start feeling maybe a bit too good about yourself and a bit too confident, then you need to uh, remember that, uh, you know, maybe maybe things will go worse in future and uh, tempering down your expectations. Exactly. So very often, once you've mapped out someone's particular cycle, uh, the solution is to do the opposite. So, for instance, if you're ruminating about all the bad things that have happened, you'd stop doing that and maybe think of all the good things that have happened. So part of the uh, the treatment for low self-esteem is a positive data log, which is uh, thinking of all the good things you've done, mm. particularly things that contradict your negative belief about yourself. And, uh, and again, all those thinking traps we mentioned earlier, like discounting the positive, mind-reading, fortune-telling, jumping glues. People with low self-esteem do that, do, do a lot of those things. You, you teach them how to challenge those those things so they'd have a more balanced view. Uh, and another key idea that comes into CBT a lot, at least it does when I do CBT, which is something called theory A and theory B. So theory A with self-esteem would be the problem is I'm not good enough. And theory B would be the problem is I worry I'm not good enough. Theory A is... The problem is what I've been thinking it is all this time. Theory B is it's a it's a problem of worry about it. Mm. And then, you know, you put those two possibilities and you ask people about the evidence for each. And if they're a little bit into their CBT, they would say, gosh, yeah, this is just a, a problem of worry. And then you say, well, if it's a problem of worry, what have you got to do? And then it'd be exactly what you said, probably changing all those behaviours sometimes to the opposite. Another thing you can do is to... Uh, undermine the credibility of the person that gave them that message so if it's your parent that gave you the idea that you weren't good enough you'd ask uh, so are they an authority on who's a good person what were they like and they would probably say no it seems so at the time when i was eight years old but now looking at them gosh they they made a mess of certain aspects of their life and why should i be treating them as, as the authority now of course that's just the 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 neocortex speaking yeah <laughs> So what you have to do then, very often, is the behavioural part, mm. which would be those behavioural experiments again, which is to live as if I am good enough. So what would you do if this was the narrative that you've been believing all this time was false and actually you are good enough? You'd be dropping all those safety-seeking compensatory strategies and doing the opposite. So maybe you stop people-pleasing. Say what you think a bit more. Mm, well, that feels a bit dangerous. So then you'd have to design one of those behavioural experiments, which was a kind of not too risky one. Right. Yeah. Okay. So one that doesn't feel too risky, but where there's a that they would predict that they'll get a negative reaction. Yes. Uh, and then hopefully, <laughs> uh, if uh, if it's the case that low self esteem is the issue, then probably they won't get a negative. And it reaction. can get complicated mm. because if I was pl- if I was playing devil's advocate, I would say, well, but what if it backfires? And of course, it can backfire because it may be that those people who are people pleasers attract as friends people mm. like people pleasers. So when this person says, you know, let's go to my favourite 
uh, Greek restaurant and, and that person starts saying, no, I actually fancy an Italian today, mm. then they might get some, oh, why are you in a bad mood? Why, you know, because <laughs> they're not used to that. I see, yeah. So you have to kind of prepare prepare them for, for so part of this might be a surge of mistraining as well okay. and being prepared to kind of fight their cause a bit. So it's sometimes not because, as easy, not as not quite as easy as just doing the opposite and hey, presto, everything is wonderful. Yeah, I suppose you might end up concluding, well, low self-esteem might be uh, a part of this, but so is that the relationships that you have in your life are maybe on the wrong keel, that you need to recalibrate uh, the dynamics that you have with your friends and family and colleagues and so on. Maybe even change some of them. Okay, right. change. <laughs> good, good, good <laughs> happen. Um, as we're suggesting these various changes, like, you know, I was saying, well, when you feel bad, what you should do is be particularly kind to yourself. When, you know, when you feel like you failed, that's when you should show the greatest compassion. I, it, it's so easy to say that. But if someone's in the habit of, as I guess, to some extent, almost all of us are all the time, that when we fail, what we our reaction is to feel bad and to feel some degree of guilt or shame or negativity. How do you intervene in that? So in Stoicism, there's something called the pre-meditation of adversity. And uh, you can do a version of that in CBT, which you have to be careful with this because if someone's at their lowest, you don't want them to be thinking about the worst thing that can happen. But if you're kind of well into therapy, they're kind of not not quite so depressed and anxious as they were and they're working on their low self-esteem, then you would want to uh, not do a general premeditation or adversity, but you'd certainly want to say, okay, so let's imagine, so going out with your friend, your friend always insists on going to, to a Greek, even though they, they, they've probably got the message now that you prefer Italian. What if you were to say, okay, uh, let's, let's, go, let's go to Italian today, and they, and they get all stroppy about it. How are you going to deal with that? So it's not just premeditating adversity, it's also thinking of a coping strategy. So in other words, you, you, you talk about it, and then you might also do an eyes closed rehearsal. So remember, we were talking earlier about how you feel affects how you think. So you try and get them to vividly imagine it, hmm. you know, because it may be when they're talking in a very calm, clear and collected way, they're able to say, oh, yeah, I'll just be assertive. But then I want you to really imagine and there's this friend and say it in their tone of voice, you know, uh, uh, why are you being awkward? You know, we always go, we always go, Greek. you like Greek, don't you? You know, how, you, how do you feel when they say that? Mm. And given that, you, you know, you're feeling that thing in the pit of your stomach, how, what could help you to, to say that assertive thing? And it might be something like a breathing exercise. Yeah. Perfectionism and low self-esteem, although they've presented them as very different, they can, re- they can go alongside each other. Because if someone's perfectionist, they're going to be subject to low self-esteem because, remember, their standards are, are unfeasibly high and mm. inflexible. So they're going to feel they're not good enough. So perfectionism can cause low self-esteem. And also if someone's got low self-esteem, they can adopt kind of a perfectionist attitude as a kind of safety measure that I'm not good enough, but if I spend hours and hours on this task, I will, it'll look like I'm good enough. Right, I see. So one has to do some... It's a compensating strategy. Yeah, so, and and sometimes it comes up in, you know, if I'm supervising other, other... uh, therapist as to what's the difference or if i'm trying to work it out myself and mm. and i think the key answer is whether the standards themselves are the problem if it's a problem with the standards then it's probably more perfectionism with with low self-esteem being a symptom whereas if it's the the messages that they've got that they're not good enough then it's probably more low self-esteem but but even then it can these, be a bit of each yeah totally i mean the other thing i was going to ask uh, before you moved on was there's low self-esteem and there's imposter syndrome. Are yes. they like? Do they go together extremely often, or is there well, a, a distinction here? Well, imposter syndrome. Uh, so when we're talking about 
diagnosis, neither low self-esteem or perfectionism are in the in the DSM. The DSM is kind of like the psychiatric manual. Uh, so they're not full-blown diagnostically disorders, but they're things that, that therapists find clinically useful. Well, I guess um, they're like patterns of thought and patterns, patterns of behaviour that we can so all recognise. They're, they're definitely a thing, aren't they? Yeah. And imposter syndrome is a newer one of those things. That So when I did my CBT training, actually at that time there was self-esteem was taught, but not perfectionism, because perfectionism seems a bit of a newer a newer kid on the block. Mm. And then imposter syndrome seems a newer kid still on the block. <laughs> but it does seem to be a thing, and perhaps particularly a thing that I've encountered more when working with people from effective altruism. So imposter syndrome is, to simplify it slightly, where people uh, think they're not good enough, but they somehow get accepted into a, a job that they think is really good or a university they think is really good. And so they feel like an imposter. I see. And they also think that if people discovered how they really were, they would get rejected or kicked out. Sounds uh, awful. Yeah. And and so they might well be that kind of person then who, who then becomes rather perfectionist because as a compensatory strategy. And they might also have rather high standards in terms of what they believe other people are. So it's a combination of low self-esteem and perfectionism very often. And what really helps those people is to realise that we are all fallible, imperfect human beings, even those people who seem really successful and never make a mistake. So in that case, a kind of survey can be really helpful. You know, someone that you really admire, actually ask them, you know, do you ever feel a bit impostery? Are you, are you always as confident as you appear to be? And have you ever made a serious mistake? And so the realisation that uh, actually, you know, we're all fallible. Yeah. We all make mistakes. Uh, is one thing that's helpful. And sometimes these people put their success down to luck or something. So uh, sometimes it's helpful for them to start to realise that they have got strengths and that uh, a lot of the good things that have happened have been down to their good qualities. So I, I, I should mention that one of the – I mentioned the positive data log, but also it's it's, not, it's a very powerful tool, which people might like to like to do this, even though they're not in therapy. Uh if they think they've got low self-esteem or, or uh, imposter syndrome, it's just ask some friends. Can you say some of the, my good qualities? You know, can you just tell me some of the things you like about me, and give me some evidence for it? Give me an example, because otherwise we'll tend to discount it and think they're just being nice. But if it's oh that time when I was really low, you were the one person that took time to to listen to me for half an hour. And then you checked in the next day to see how I was. So that so I think you are a really kind person, and that's evidence that that will start to chip away at their belief that they're that they're not good enough or that or that they're an imposter. So that's another good technique. Yeah, one of the big insights that has gradually gotten incorporated into uh, into me at, at a gut level over many years is just that uh, no one is as good as it seems or no one is as good as uh, what, what what gets presented and the thing is we, we can see that so much with ourselves because we're we're seeing through our eyes uh, 24 hours a day i suppose the the example of this that people talk about a lot is of course you know people put up their happiest photos on instagram or they, they present this very curated vision of their life on instagram but this that same phenomenon applies everywhere and it, you, you see extremely filtered uh examples 
examples of people's work. So if people produce something bad, then it doesn't get uh, pushed out. And so you're just unlikely to hear about it at all. People kind of bury their failures and don't talk about them so much in, in conversation. Successes tend to get... Uh, just repeated a lot, whereas uh, mistakes that people make, they they just never mention them to anyone else. That's a very natural thing to do. And so if you just take people's presentation at face value, you're going to think that everyone else is more is better and more successful and makes fewer mistakes than than you do. Also, you've got regression to the mean. So some people, you might think they're, they're really amazing because they've had a streak of good luck so far in their career. But uh, if you, um, you know, set a reminder to look back in five years, often you'll find that things have gone a bit worse after that uh, because you've, you've tended to notice them and idolize them at the moment when they've kind of achieved their peak level of success or at least their highest ratio of to success to, to mistakes. So I don't know. I, th- I think even people who notice this phenomenon tend to underestimate how pervasive and how, how intense it is. Uh, and imagine this is a big issue for people with imposter syndrome. Exactly. So it's kind of is part of the human condition, as you say, that we, we our lived experiences very much. We know our doubts. We know our failures. We know, you know, only too well, at least mo- most of us realize that, mm. you know, if we haven't, then we've probably got a different psychological yeah, yeah. problem, yeah. you know. Uh, and yet other people, as you absolutely say, whether it's public figures or even friends, right, very yeah. often, will just see a public part, not the private part. So... Yeah, it's a problem with the human condition in a, in a way that we're all going to potentially feel that we're worse or not as good as, as, as other people because that's all we see. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's push on and talk about another big personal passion of yours, uh, maybe the, the other bigger passion of your life, which is uh, Stoicism. Yeah, as I mentioned, you've written a couple of books about Stoicism, and you're also Director of Research for Modern Stoicism, part of the Aurelius Foundation, uh, and you co-facilitate Stoic Week. So I think fair, fair to say that you're a Just slight, slight adjustment. Yeah. I co-wrote the, the cobwebs. Yeah, okay. Uh, in, <laughs> um, in case Chuck Chaprani is yeah. listening. Even if he's not listening, <laughs> yeah. people should know that he can't. Right in the complaint email, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, first up, I guess lots of people will have heard the term stoic, but you mean something kind of a bit more specific uh, than what uh, the standard meaning of st- when we say that someone is stoic, usually we, we mean they have a stiff upper lip, but uh, stoicism in philosophy and in mental health uh, means something a bit more than that. Yeah, wh- wh- what is it to you? So again, there's two parts that I need to answer that. So you're absolutely right, Rob, that in the English language, stoicism does mean stiff upper lip, not complaining, carrying on, even though you know n- things are tough. And that is kind of a caricature of what the ancient Greek and Roman philosophy was. So it's, as with most caricatures, there is an element of truth to it. Mm. But true Stoicism is much richer and much more helpful than that. Because actually there's evidence that that kind of stiff upper lip actually has got some positives, but it's actually probably more problematic than, than helpful in general. Yeah. So it's not something I particularly recommend. If you had to boil down kind of, what I get, you know, modern day stoicism is to you. Is, are there like you know three three principles, or is there a slogan version of it? Marcus Aurelius, meditations nine point six is a summary capsule statement, yeah. and it goes like this: rational judgment now at this very moment, action for the social good now at this very moment, willing acceptance now at this very moment of what you can't change. That's all you need. Yeah. So that translates into what I've come to call the three pillars of Stoicism, but that's not an official. So <laughs> this is what I call them, the three pillars. Of st- I see them as the three pillars of Stoicism. Yeah. So the last one in Marcus Aurelius was the willing acceptance at this moment of what you can't change. So that is the dichotomy of control. And that is actually probably the number one thing that people really appreciate in Stoicism. And if I'm working with someone... Uh, 
particularly in private practice, people do sometimes seek me out because they know I know a bit about Stoicism and they're interested in Stoicism. Then the dichotomy of told is usually where we start. And it, it goes like this, you know, supposing someone's going through a, a, a difficult relationship issue, you'd ask them, well, what aspects of the situation can you change and what can't you change? And the aspects that you can't change, what is the best attitude? And the aspects that you can change, what is the best attitude? And what do you think the answer to that is? <laughs> uh, I've Sorry. read a little bit about stoicism, so I have, I have a bit of a bit of a clue. But okay, so so the first decision tree is, uh, you know, is this something that I can change, or is this just like yeah. some background uncertainty about the world uh, yeah. that I really can't yeah. affect? And then the question is, what sort of disposition should I bring to yeah. to, to yeah. these to these issues? Yes, uh, I'm actually not sure what the okay. what are, yeah. So if if you generally can't change it, then it's best to accept it, which doesn't mean approving of it. But if you're stuck in traffic and you can't change the fact that you are stuck in traffic, is it better to get angry and turn into a kind of basal faulty? Or is it better to recognize that this is just something that's happening, that you're better off not using your energy reigning against? Right. So if you really can't change something, accept it. But what about the stuff that you can change? Well, there's good old serenity prayer, which also... It's probably inspired by stoicism or it wants it's if it wasn't it's a heck of a coincidence <laughs> you know uh god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference so that would suggest you need courage and wisdom and i would suggest that you probably need something like proactivity as well so be really proactive about the stuff that you can change and and then we get into problem solving and and planning you know, so there you are, you're stuck in traffic. You can't change the fact that you're stuck in traffic now. But what you might be able to do, if you can do so safely, contact the people who are expecting you and tell them that you're going to be late. What you might do in future is set off earlier or go by train. And what you might do if you really are like, or if you feel strongly about it, is have some campaign for a better transport system in the country. Right. Yeah. So that's why it's not about stiff upper lip or quietism because there's this very important branch about aspects of a situation that you can change where you don't want to do your best to change it if it's worth changing. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, completely. So the case of being angry when you're stuck in traffic, or I, I often get frustrated or uh, anxious or even a bit ashamed when I'm running late for something, mm -hmm. and I do have to stop myself. And the, the interesting thing is, the feelings, the negative feelings that you're having then, they have this intense feeling of being useful somehow. You feel like this is an appropriate reaction and mm -hmm. to simply remain calm would be negligent somehow or failing to accomplish something. But I suppose, you know, often it actually is directly accomplishing nothing. It's actually just, just causing you harm. But I suppose the, the, the stoic approach would be to say, well, what like actual fun, like what could we do? Like uh, maybe you should learn a lesson about next time you need to leave earlier uh, rather than just accept the, the, the emotions think like, well, what, actions or what changes could be made and then maybe what dispositions would would help to serve that absolutely and the stoics of course didn't know their neuroscience or hadn't, hadn't read kahneman and tversky etc but we could say you know this is our old brain creating these emotions or, or creating these thoughts these automatic thoughts which actually aren't helpful for us in modern day life right. they might have been helpful in, in prehistory i don't know but they're not helpful now and so we have to have that detachment to get our neocortex working and actually decide what is functional here. 
Yeah. And that's the same kind of thing that one would do in a stop that we talked about with CBT. Obviously, the two, CBT and Stoicism, are quite closely related. So it doesn't come naturally very often, and it does require some awareness. So coming back to those three, the three pillars I mentioned, the second one is the virtues. And I was speaking to, I was doing a talk at my workplace the other day, and I had someone who happened to be a counsellor come up to me in the break and say, oh, very interesting what you said about, about Stoicism, but I didn't like what you said about the virtues. I hate the word virtues. <laughs> I said, well, I said, the virtues, no. It's, it's, I said, don't, don't worry about the word. It's actually the Greek word. I didn't say this, but I wish I had. The Greek word for it <laughs> was, was uh, arete, which just means excellence. So think of the virtues as just being skills that help you live an excellent life. Think of it as being like a virtuoso, like, like a violin player would be a virtuoso at the violin. The virtues are things that make you a virtuoso at living well. And living well means... It's a win-win between you having a flourishing life and you being a good person. But this idea of not just stoicism can give the wrong impression and give a very negative uh, feeling for some people. Also, the word, the virtue, the expression, the virtues. Well, I mean, maybe in the modern world, it's associated with what Aristotle and the Catholic mm. theology and yes. uh, kind of religious thinking. But I mean, if you just think of, if you just replace virtue with positive quality or yes. what disposition should I have? I don't know. It feels like it's obviously a sensible way of thinking. But actually, so so why is it that the Stoics foreground virtues or you know uh, you know qualities or dispositions as the as the thing that you should be selecting? I think it's helpful to think of the virtues as qualities that help us deal with our tricky brains. Now, that might not have been exactly the way that the, the ancient Stoics yeah. positioned it. Is, is that a quote from way. Marcus Aurelius? <laughs> Possibly not. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's the same thing, it was, it, it, really. It's just in different language. You know, the virtues yeah. are things that help you live a happy life and be a good person. But I think it's helpful, since we know about tricky brains, to, to position it that way or to think of it and to frame it that way as being that it's tricky being a human being. We have fears that mean that we might not do stuff that would actually benefit us and other people. We have desires that if we let them run free, might get us into trouble, might cause bad health, or might cause problems in our relationships, mm. for instance. We live in communities, and we might actually be geared to be rather self-interested, because if we weren't self-interested, yeah. we wouldn't have survived. But if we're purely self-interested and disregard other people's interests, that would be problematic for us and other people. And we have these brains, but as we've said at length, these are rather tricky brains, and we seem to be geared to not just be self-interested, but also to prioritise the now and the short term in favour of the long term. And we don't always use this capacity to have rational judgment now at this very moment. Yeah. So what are the four qualities that we need to counteract this somewhat problematic part of the human condition. And very broadly, we could say that we need courage to deal with fear. We need self-control or moderation or temperance to deal with some desires. We need justice in a very broad sense to include things like benevolence and compassion and kindness and love to counteract our possible selfishness. And we need wisdom so that we make good use of these wonderful neocortexes that we have. So that would be my rationale for the virtues, those positive qualities. And furthermore, 
I would suggest that that is a win-win if we have those. If we don't have those, we will mess up our lives and we will mess up other people's lives. Mm. So I'd suggest that it's a win-win between happiness and an ethics, between uh, being, uh, having a, a positive, pleasurable life and uh, being a good person. And in, interestingly, in positive psychology, as much as you've suggested, they've rebranded. They, they do mention the virtues, but they've rebranded them as character strengths. Mm. And they've, they've got actually six virtues. So they've added, they did a, a literature search, a very extensive one, and they agreed with the Stoics or the Plato as well about those four cardinal virtues. Mm. But then they added two other ones, which were humanity, which I've bundled up into justice which I think is fair enough. I think the Stoics did that as well. Then they've got one called Transcendence, which is all about connecting with the world outside ourselves. But I would argue that that's probably a consequence of, of, of all the other ones. Yeah. You'll find meaning if you, if you do these things. It's not just me saying that these things, you know, logically sound like they're good qualities. There is actually evidence that these character strengths are beneficial to our own well-being and health and effectiveness and being a good member of the community. So that's the second pillar of Stoicism. Okay. What's, the, what's the third one? So the third one is therapy of the emotions and Stoic mindfulness, which will sound familiar to having heard about what CBT is, but it's specifically noticing. So there you are, you're in the car, someone's cut you up, say. It's noticing the judgments that you're making particularly. Uh, so it's a bit different to a general mindfulness where you're noticing everything that's going on. It's specifically noticing the judgment and then choosing what to do with those thoughts because it connects with the dichotomy of control. We haven't got control over our initial thoughts, hmm. like whatever, you know, expletive deleted kind of thing. <laughs> but we have got control of our response to it. And similarly, we haven't got control over our initial urges, but we have to some extent anyway, got, got more control over what we do with those with those urges. So the CBT therapists have then developed that into into the procedures that I described earlier, like like stop and cognitive restructuring. Epictetus in particular has some has some nice phrases like uh, be like the the night guard or the or the kind of the gatekeeper who doesn't let let in the thoughts without examining them closely. I see. So you can you can think of that either as a kind of mindfulness thing of just noticing them and having a sort of detachment, or you can have the idea of actually challenging them. And when you're doing the stoic version of therapy of the emotions, you can incorporate all of those CBT tools we talked about earlier. But there are also some interesting stoic twists to it, which would include the idea that the main thing that matters in life for the stoics is being a good person. That is what matters most. And all the other things in life are either preferred or dispreferred, but they're kind of like in a second division. And what are the second uh, secondary things that also matter but not quite as much? Well, uh, it's not, not quite as much. It's that they are actually, it's like in a game of cards. Yeah. It's like they're trumps. The, I see. The, the virtues are the things that matter mm. and, they, and they trump anything else. Well, it'll be all the normal things all we, normal we think things matter, like, like, yeah. like health success, and status yeah. right. and what other people think of us, but really, all those things. Yeah. So sure. that can be quite helpful if you buy into it because then it's, okay, this person or this train company has just offered me a, a challenge because I can actually build my practice – 
of being patient or being kind in how I respond to this. And the fact that I'm, you know, feel that I've been disrespected, actually, that doesn't really matter. Because what matters is, is me responding in a, in a, with a positive quality. So these adversities, you can actually turn them around to being positive things. I see. So, so a convenient thing for someone with this attitude or the, the stoic attitude to what is a good life is that any adversity simply allows you to cultivate even greater virtue, to have the ability to overcome challenges and be virtuous nonetheless, which, Seneca, is, which is the paragon of a good Seneca life. puts it in, 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 in that way, yeah. Yeah. Why... Why use virtues? I mean, uh, you, you could have you could have said, well, you need to stop and think about your feelings, and oh, yeah, and, and you need to distinguish, you know, what things you can change and what things you can't. But then maybe you should, you know, having figured out what you can change, you should do the best thing. You should analyze it and do the best thing, or that you should follow these particular rules of of how you want to behave. But instead, they're using this heuristic of whether you're displaying these particular positive qualities as as the way of figuring out how to act. Um, is there a theory behind that? I mean, I know within uh, the kind of philosophy that I'm familiar with, there's a particular reasoning for why you would use virtues uh, as, as your decision-making process. But uh, yeah, do you want to uh, expand well, on that? if I approach it from the other direction, what's the problem with active utilitarianism is it's very new-brainy. So, so act utilitarianism is the style of utilitarianism where with every individual act, in theory, you say what specific choice, what specific action in this situation would produce the best outcome, the, you know, the best expected consequences, all things considered for all time. And I, I suppose this is often contrasted with rule utilitarianism, where rather than try to figure out the best action in a specific situation, instead you look at a lot of different situations and say what general principles of action would on average, in uh, you know, across a wide portfolio of choices, lead to good outcomes, and of course, that's that's more easily computed <laughs> because you don't have to go through this enormous calculation in every specific case. Instead, you end up with rules of thumb like don't steal or, or, or whatever else that you think is generally conducive to good outcomes. Um, yeah, do you, do you want to take it from there? Yeah. So one of the problems with with act utilitarianism taken in a kind of very crude, naive way is that, as I said, it's very new brainy, and you've got to actually kind of take a step back, and then you've got to try and calculate the consequences. And there's, there's several problems with that. One is we might be self-interested and not doing it in a very fair way. Or we might go to the opposite extreme mm. and think we've got to do be, be self-denying, actually, which seems to be what some effective altruists take, which, which is not really implied by utilitarianism, but some people to think they effectively count for nothing. Or uh, we just might get into a problem where we haven't got time to calculate or taking the time actually is self-defeating and it's it's a bit like someone playing chess where you're just trying to calculate everything and you and you run out of time. Mm. So R.M. Hare, who, as we said, I, I studied back in the day, uh, he came up with the idea that there are two levels of, of moral thinking. One is the critical level, which is where utilitarianism arises, and that's where you decide what your rules are and he, he kind of tended to think of it in terms of rules. But you could also say that's where you decide what the virtues are and what those virtues actually look like in practice. So you do this kind of, when you're cool, calm and collected and have got lots of time, you think about what the rules should be and what the virtues should be. And that's your critical thinking. And also you might do it in, in kind of really problematic cases where the rules conflict or, or the virtues conflict. That, that would be what, what Hare would say anyway. Mm. But then most of the time you're on autopilot because you've you kind of really uh, internalized these rules or virtues. So most of the time you're in your, what he calls intuitive thinking and 
what uh, Kahneman Tversky would call uh, the fast thinking and what Green would call uh, the automatic mode. And I think that fits quite nicely with what we know about the brain and, and neuroscience, that actually we want to be in that system most of the time because that's what we that's what we seem to be programmed to do as human beings. Yeah, everything else is a lot of effort. Everything so. else is a lot of effort and we, it won't be very reliable to do and we'll rationalise it in a, in a bad way unless we're doing those stop type things really well, etc. <laughs> now, why choose virtues as a primary thing? I wouldn't say rather than rules because you can still have rules mm. within a kind of main virtues ethics framework. I think there's two reasons. One is virtues are dispositions of character. So they include a motivational element. So to be fully virtuous, actually, you're not quite doing what we said earlier. You're not generally doing a stop. You're not generally saying, uh, oh, I've got to deal with these unhelpful automatic thoughts. I'm going to have to take a breath and I'm going to have to decide what's best. And I'm going to have to challenge my initial initial impulse. And then I'm going to, with great effort, do the right thing. Uh, once you've progressed, you will have internalized those virtues. So that's the idea is that these are these become old brain system one automatic dispositions of character. So you automatically want to do the courageous thing, want to do the moderate thing, want to do the just thing, want to do the wise thing. And so they are not so effortful and there isn't this kind of uh, conflict going on. That's the ideal yeah. Now, the Stoics weren't so stupid that they thought that this was actually how all human beings were. So they had this idea of a concept of the sage. And the sage is this fully developed, rational person, that, like in that quote from Marcus Aurelius, a person that actually lives and breathes that the whole time. Right. Uh, a fully enlightened person. Fully enlightened person, yeah. as, in, yeah. as in other traditions. Yeah. Now, they thought that the sage actually only comes along perhaps once every few hundred years. Okay. So it's it's an ideal. But there is also an idea in Stoicism that we can work towards the sage. And there's this concept called oikiosis. Uh, You'll have to translate that yeah. for me. <laughs> well, it literally, mean, it literally means, I think, appropriation or something. But it doesn't really make much sense as a literal translation. But what it kind of means is developing from this kind of very selfish, irrational creature that we might remember ourselves being when we were younger and hopefully like not so much now. Someone who's more like a child or an animal or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. To someone who is fully human in the sense that we have this capacity for benevolence and rationality, and that's where we're working towards. And if we're really getting there, it's not just a case of forcing ourselves to be like that. We've really internalised it. And so that's another reason why, for why I think virtues ethics quite is quite appealing. It's because it's it goes with the idea that it's it, it links with motivation, and it links with a you know what you're disposed to do. So you might have rules, but actually you don't you know you don't even have to initially refer to them. You know it's like you just you just tell the truth because that's what you feel like doing. I right. think we can identify with it, can't Completely, we? When we yeah. think about things like telling the truth, that's what you know generally that's what we do. And there's no great internal conflict. And so the idea is that for the Stoic that we're like, we're like that with all, all of these qualities. And remember we said earlier that these qualities, I, th I think, can in general be win-wins between us being happy and us being good people. 
uh, we talked about positive feedback loops when we were talking about those uh, negative cycles, when we are talking about perfectionism and low self-esteem, we can talk about there being nicely named virtuous positive cycle, yeah. whereby we cultivate the virtues, we're kind of like honest in our relationships. In general, we'll get positive feedback from that. And so it will, we'll be more disposed to do it in the future. And we uh, tend to live flourishing lives. And this might sound a bit like a fairy tale, but there is, again, positive psychology has, has although it hasn't necessarily connected that much with stoicism yet, it's certainly done research on the virtues and there is evidence uh, and this kind of research like that random acts of kindness benefit the person that does them as much, if not more than the person that they're done to, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, the way, the way I think about it is you can imagine, so the dumb, naive thing, or some sort of base layer is that, well, every case, you're, um, you just have to compute it specifically and figure out what the right action is. But then, so obviously, that's unmanageable. Uh, so then you want to go up uh, higher, like to, to some level of abstraction or generalization, we're going to say, well, you know, considering a lot of different scenarios, averaging across them, what principles that we uh, that we could, of, of behavior could we come up with that would be conducive to, to good outcomes or, or, to, or to the right sort of actions. But you might even think, well, actually, there's going to be too many of those. And even that's a little bit too specific and a bit too prescriptive. We need to go up to a higher level and say, what, even what dispositions, what general ways of living, what, what general automatic responses would be conducive to taking good actions uh, across the board. And that, that's where I think of virtue ethics is falling, as falling, as an even higher level of abstraction of what is what would a person who generally produces good outcomes be like. And Although, I mean, in a sense, you've given something up by generalizing to that degree, but it seems like it is what works. <laughs> if, you actually wanted, if you actually wanted to ask me, you know, what would be a good way to think about your life on a day-to-day basis uh, or what, what is a practical way of living a moral life? I think thinking about virtues most of the time is, is better, both because it, well, it allows a, it's both like somewhat specific and a bit flexible and it's calculable. So you can spit out an answer more intuitively about, you know, am I acting according to the virtues that I've specified, uh, you know, a good person would, would exhibit in this case or, or what action would, you know, would uh, be a good mixture of wise and courageous and, and so on. And it's also way more motivating. I mean, when you think about rules, often they seem constrictive and irritating constraints on your behavior, whereas virtues are more uh, appealing because you're thinking, well, actually, I want to be a wise person. I want to be a courageous person. I want to achieve justice. And so it's more, I think it's like more positive action orientated uh, way of thinking, or at least, uh, at least to me. Very well put. I love it. Love it. You converted cool. me. Right. Well, I am, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable about stoicism, but uh, I, I'm, I'm something of a fan. Actually, one of my favorite YouTube videos that I've watched literally dozens of times is a, a description of stoicism from the School of Life. Have you seen this one? I think so. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's got some some uh, lines in it that uh, I've really stuck in my mind. I think um, one of the what's this, this quote from Seneca? I think was it like, uh, "What point is there in crying over parts of life? The the whole of it calls for tears." <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, a little bit dark, but I, uh, when, when bad things happen, I find that very comforting somehow. You're just like, yeah. that, the whole, like, life is just full of terrible things that happen, and it's kind of an absurd joke on all of us. So, yeah. like, why, why highlight the specific bad thing that happened today? <laughs> it doesn't stand out in the scheme of things. Yeah, what, what attitude can you take? You can either laugh or cry. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. I, I just, just want to bring up some other things from that video that I kind of understood as being um, related to stoicism, uh, but that you didn't mention. One is... This video talks about how the Stoics thought that one reason that we have, you know, angry reactions or one reason that we have negative responses to things or things that are kind of productive is that we have naive expectations about the future. So we tend to think, 
we shouldn't be stuck in traffic. Like traffic shouldn't exist. I should generally get to things on time and not face impediments. And people shouldn't be rude to me. This isn't the way that the world ought to be. Uh, and then these odd expectations are constantly foiled by reality because the world is, in fact, much worse than that and not optimized and problems do exist. Uh, and we are going to confront people who are rude. But there's this conflict between these peculiar expectations that we have in reality uh, then generate negative uh, reactions. And I, I think the the Stoics generally suggest that we should maybe be a little bit pessimistic or think, you know, when you, uh, what was it? I think, was it Aurelius or Seneca who said, you know, when you get up in the morning, you know, don't expect things to go great. Expect betrayal, expect, uh, you know, a tragedy, expect uh, every, you know, everything to go wrong. And then you'll feel great <laughs> no matter how the day goes. Is, yeah. is, is that right? Well, it's my favorite passage in okay. meditations. It, he says, when you make up in the morning, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it's kind of like, uh, Remember that you're going to meet people who are ungrateful and rude and envious. But then it goes on because it's not just about lowering your expectations, but you're absolutely right. Lowering your expectations is an important part of it because if we have unrealistic, because it's not even pessimism, it's just realism, mm. actually. I think that's important to note because yeah. it's true. Yeah. True, isn't you it? will get sick. You will get yeah. that. You will, you <laughs> people know. will betray you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you will lose your job sometimes. Yeah. These things happen and are quite likely to happen to some extent. So it starts off with the with the expectations part of it, but then it's, but I can choose my response to it. I don't, you know, they might be like that, but I, and this might sound a, li- a little bit, I don't know, superior, but it's kind of like, I, I know better. I, I know what is good. And I know that what matters is just me being virtuous, which is part of the stoic value system. So I needn't let it bother me. And furthermore... I'm very much free-flowing paraphrase here, but the way I like to put it would be, we're all in it together. We're all human beings. And it's kind of unhumane to be angry with them. And so I should forgive these people and actually embrace them as my fellow human beings. Hmm. And That's uh, a tall order sometimes. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> so you could say that that bit of meditation is, is just kind of wake up and expect bad things to happen. Hmm. But it's much more than that more, because yeah. it's a whole it's a whole of stoicism really it's separating what you can control and what you can't control and then having a positive attitude to it which is partly forgiveness but partly a real kinship mm. kinship camaraderie with with your fellow human beings even those that <laughs> tend to say haven't seen the light yet which is kind of probably more a christian kind of phrase but it, right. there is that kind of tone in marcus 2.1 for sure so yeah, absolutely right. I I think uh, Alan de Botton writes. He did a TV program actually on. Mm. He wrote a book called the, the Constellations of Philosophy. Then he mm. did a Channel Four TV program, and he there's uh, a hilarious clip where he has this. He tries to do stoic therapy on a white van driver in London, and and says to him, "Oh, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Oh, you're an optimist. You've got to be." And then he tries to convince Wayne, the the driver, to to have lower expectations, and it doesn't go all that well. This therapy. I see. <laughs> That's interesting. If I recall, uh, one of the arguments that the Stoics, at least according to, the, to this video, made was, you know, people would say. I get angry and frustrated because I'm a passionate person. But they said, no, you get angry because you're an idiot, because you're forming these false expectations. These you, you, You're constantly expecting things to go well, even though all of your past experiences suggest that things will go a mixture of well and badly. And I guess that, that fear of being seen as foolish might uh, motivate people to reevaluate <laughs> what, what they expect in life. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of shock therapy in a way. And, yeah. and uh, uh, Seneca 
wrote a lovely little book called uh, On Anger, which uh, is really like a, a really good self-help manual for anger. And he, he spends a lot of time, and this is what was lost on Wayne, the, the driver, was so Seneca spends a lot of time on the pros and cons of anger and why anger is such a bad thing, mm. whereas Wayne, the van driver, seemed to just get out of bed to, to enjoy being angry oh, at yeah, his fellow yeah. drivers. So he didn't quite see, oh, why, see. why it was problematic. Ah. Uh, so, well, I mean, I suppose if you actually were enjoying it, then um, yeah. maybe there is something to be said for it. But I, yeah. I would say most of the time I don't enjoy being angry. Well, it, it's a very mixed emotion, anger, because on the one hand, it is unpleasant. On the other hand, it's so delicious because you feel like the, the sense of just rage at other people wronging you. There's something very appealing about it. Yeah, it's well, and we, we stand on the high ground. We're right, they're wrong. Yeah, we get, right. and so we don't have to open up to the possibility that that we're in the wrong. Yeah, and it feels good to judge other people. So it's got again, you could do a pros and cons of anger, like pros and cons of perfection. And you'd see there'd be mm. some payoffs, but for people who've got a, a problem with anger, some s- severe disadvantages. Now we might come on to the some things that are problematic in stoicism yeah, later. Yeah, well- but I want to say something there. There are some people that have the opposite problem. Mm. So we were talking earlier, weren't we, about how, you know, for everything, for everything, there's kind of like, you know, it's got to be the right person to match the right treatment for. There are some people who have a problem with not getting angry at all, and then it's kind of suppressed. It wouldn't be a suitable treatment for them right. to say, don't get angry. What Actually, what would be helpful for them is to come much more in touch with the parts of them that are concerned for justice mm. rather than being suppressed to become much more in touch with those parts, it still wouldn't really be anger. It would it would come out as concern for myself and something like assertiveness. So it's not like the Stoics are wrong with their message that, that anger is a bad thing in general, but it's not a helpful message for some people where they've got the opposite problem of kind of subjugating their own needs. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. I mean, uh, I guess one way to avoid getting angry is to avoid even being aware of what you want. So yeah. you are almost, yeah, you, you you sublimate your true feelings about something. Exactly. I guess even if that doesn't come out in some distorted behavior, it means that you're potentially not sticking up or communicating the things that you actually care about. Uh, exactly. I suppose one, one objection one could make to thinking about things in terms of virtues, well, I guess there's many questions here. One is like, how would you figure out what the appropriate virtues to value are i guess that could just be a very difficult thing to think to figure out and also you know which virtue should you be highlighting in any particular decision that that is kind of somewhat left unclear it sounded like the, the stoics what they have the, the four cardinal virtues and then mm-hmm. then some other virtues maybe those are the wrong ones how would we know whether they were the right ones to, to choose well i think that kind of almost existential argument that i made earlier about those four virtues addressing the human condition it persuades me anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my colleague Chris Gill, is, 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 I don't want to own that argument because he, he said something very similar that, that I've kind of based that on. Martin Seligman in the positive psychology movement did a, a very large literature review of philosophy, religion, societies, uh, and found out that these were fairly universal and then divided them into the actually 24 strengths, which are the, like these mini virtues. Mm. And they, you know there were certain criteria that they adopted like does this in general tend to uh, nourish people? Does it tend to help other people? And so things like hope got included for that reason and humour. Uh, but obviously we can debate as, to, as yeah. to whether, I don't know, humility, for instance, is that a virtue or a vice? You know, and then... Right. And then so in terms of what the key virtues are, I think one can make a, a fairly strong case. And also these 
these kind of sub virtues or mini virtues or qualities i think i think one could one could say that it's pretty clear that say patience is a is in general a good thing now what the stoics said helpfully or unhelpfully is that wisdom is like the master virtue and wisdom kind of mediates all the others so is optimism always a virtue no of course it isn't you know if you've got a a, a pilot and they're very optimistic and they hear a <laughs> rattling noise you don't really want them to be optimistic about it well so it seems like some virtues it's about hitting the sweet spot in between yeah. two other extremes. so that's aristotle's theory of the mean i see yeah and and stoics don't have the theory of the mean but they would say it's what the person of practical wisdom would decide which mm. sounds a bit circular but right. then it is the idea that if you're trained and experienced then you just understand that if you're if you're a pilot of a plane this is not something you should be optimistic about so again i'm not sure it's it's the complete answer but one of their things would be you 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 think of a role model and what would they do in this situation the stoics would would say actually imagine that socrates socrates was one of their role models who they thought was a bit sage-like. Mm. You know, what would Socrates do in this situation? How would Socrates think about it? So that would be one of, one of their ways of, of deciding. Uh, the strength of it is it's very context-dependent, which I think is a good thing. Like you were saying with your different degrees, you actually want yeah. something yeah. that is very general, but at the same time isn't just a rule that applies all the time. Right. The weakness is it doesn't always <laughs> tell you what to do. It's, it's kind not very of, deterministic. It's, it's not yeah. very deterministic. Which is why virtue ethics needs something like utilitarianism as the theory of that you go to to decide what the virtues are. So it's not just that the human condition says that. It's actually, if we develop those dispositions, then it will lead to greater happiness for us and other people. So there is a kind of, there is some consequentialism embedded in Stoicism, but it doesn't highlight it. Right, because if you had no view on what was a good outcome, then how would you? Like, for, for example, what if you know creating just a horrible world where people were miserable uh, yeah. was was the desired outcome? Then I guess like, the virtues that they're choosing probably aren't conducive to that. So exactly. uh, it seems like to some extent there, there's consequentialism embedded exactly. in the choice. An interesting example where it's just too non-deterministic would be rather than ask you know which charity helps people the most, uh, give well say this charity evaluator uh, could instead ask you know what what charity would a virtuous person give to? Yeah. But I think that that's an example where it's just it doesn't say enough. Does what what would a courageous person give to? Um, that's a case where thinking what would a virtuous person do does can, does get you to think well they should they would use some of their resources to benefit others in as exactly. much as they were in a position to do so but then you need a different decision making procedure to think well which of these organizations will help people the most exactly generally this is a second problem with with stoicism potentially well in ancient stoicism is that it's indeterminate and worse than that the utilitarians seem to have got a lot of, our, of the right answers and the Stoics didn't necessarily get the right answers mm. to things like how do we treat women, how do we treat slaves, how do animals. we treat animals. Right. And then we've got you know, people like uh, Jeremy Bentham being one of, one of the earliest people in, in, in modern times to argue for gay rights. We've right. got Mill arguing against the, uh, you know, how women were treated and we've got people like Peter Singer arguing that animals are treated much better. So it seems like utilitarianism gets the right answers. And I think one problem with a virtue ethics point of view is it, it can lend itself to a... It's almost too flexible and too vague that well, you could rationalise bad action. Yeah, and you can rationalise the status quo. Oh, it yeah. feels right. And you take your role model to be 
that person looks like a, a role model, but they keep slaves, so we should keep slaves. Yeah. So what utilitarianism and consequentialism asks us to do is is to really think about, well, happiness, suffering, thinking about, you know, do, do they suffer? Can they have they got the potential to be happy? And that's what matters. Mm. So at one level, actually, experiences are prioritised in utilitarianism, whereas they're definitely not in uh, in Stoicism. Oh, really? So, so you were saying that the the Stoic vision of what a good life was mm. was a virtuous life, yes. one where you yeah exhibited these yes. positive qualities. Yes. And whether you had a good time or whether you were suffering wasn't really the issue. Exactly. Uh, I see. So it wasn't. It didn't have the well being focused element. That's interesting. I mean. Weren't there other schools of thought? I mean, I think some ancient philosophers were really concerned with, I guess I'm thinking of the Epicureans, among yeah. others. So um, the Epicureans were yeah. the opposite. Again, they thought virtues were important, but mm. purely instrumentally. And they believed that pleasure was the sole good. But what they meant by pleasure was actually ataraxia, which is kind of like serenity or the absence of anxiety. So they had a slightly strange view of what, what pleasure was. But they said that, that's what you should be solely concerned with. And so they were kind of like utilitarians without the social conscience mm. side more, of it. More egoistic. More, ego, more egoistic. But not. But then again, they thought that friendship was an important part of, of flourishing. So, so they'd be nice to their friends. But you can imagine an Epicurean not being so bothered about famine or something like that. So, so Epicureans seem to have got some things right, but some things wrong. Mm. I think Stoicism provides a very good practical philosophy partly because what we were saying about the virtues as being in practical terms uh motivating and meaning that we don't have to do all this kind of calculation the whole mm. time the dichotomy of control i think makes just very good logical sense mm. as a kind of uh, heuristic and then it's got it's also got this therapeutic element which helps us be very resilient so if we're interested in the impact we make on the world I forgot one of my favourite CBT analogies, which is the oxygen mask. See, you know, yeah. so when you go on the plane, <laughs> when they say, uh, you know, if there's a failure in the in, in oxygen, mm. then you put on. Even if you've got little ones with you, whose oxygen mask do you put on first? Your yeah. own. Why? Because they can't put it on if you don't, yeah. if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after anyone else. And the same thing, I think, goes for everybody that's concerned about the impact they make on other people. If you don't mm. look after yourself you're not going to be in a good position to help other people. So that is something that I'd often talk about with uh, moral perfectionists and perfectionists yeah. in general. So the lovely thing about Stoicism, the why I'm such a fan of it, is that it, it does very much help us to think about our own mental well-being and, and look after ourselves to be resilient, and as well as having that moral compass, which mm. is the virtues. And the idea would be probably, instead of phrasing it as, doing the most good you can it would probably be the best version of yourself that you right. can be well and i guess that, that highlights another aspect of what's uh, nice about the virtue framing and is and is challenging about the consequentialist framing which is that you have more control over yeah. the characteristics that you display than the consequences that you cause that it's possible to be kind on any or it's possible <laughs> most of the time to be to be kind on any given day but you can't actually make it be the case that your project goes well or that you benefit people or things considered maybe that's another way in which it's more motivating is that you feel like there's a that uh, if you're trying to found a business and have it be super successful um 
there's just no way you can guarantee that that's going to be the case. But but you can have been a good uh, colleague while, while you're doing that. And so the, the fact that you are more likely to be able to succeed at your goal, uh, I think, makes it more appealing and gives you less of a sense of dread. Exactly. And in modern terms, I might talk about process goals as opposed to outcome goals. Mm. So you're focusing on the process goal, which is a process of being virtuous or doing the best you can. And they've also, the Stoics got this lovely analogy of the archer. You know, like just as an archer, it's outdoors, there might be wind. And so you, what, what is under your control is you can prepare, you can take aim carefully, and you can fire. But then the wind may mean that you miss your target or the animal might move if you're aiming at an animal. Mm. And so what is the best attitude of the stoic archer it's to be, you know, very diligent in terms of their preparation and concentration, etc. But once they fired the arrow, to really let go of, of their attachment to the outcome, because it's outside their control, they would, obviously, they would like it to, to hit the aim. But if it doesn't, they're not going to get into a whole self-flagellation cycle, mm. because it's outside their control. I did my best. If, if I didn't do my best, I'll learn from it. Mm. And so it links with what modern psychologists call the growth mindset. Yeah. That, you know, you if you fail, you learn from it. But for, for Stoics, it would be a case of focusing very much of what is your, under your control and letting go of concern for the outcome, yeah. which I think is, is something that means you're going to have a better state of mental health because you're not going to go into the worry mm. so much or the rumination. So Marcus Aurelius wrote this, the meditations, right, is the kind of classic summary of this general uh, philosophy or approach to life. Didn't he write that while he was engaged in an imperialist war against other groups trying to subjugate them to Roman rule? Um, well, that's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it <laughs> would be that the empire was under, was under attack and okay. it was a defensive war. Yeah. I guess it. I was thinking that slightly highlights that it's possible, I suppose, to yeah, have, have very strong um, uh, control over your own emotions and try to, try to learn from things. But there is something lacking, I guess, from this worldview, potentially, because it doesn't maybe have enough to say about what is a just world, all things considered, and what should we care, like, what should we be trying to do for others far away? I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about the uh, gung-ho utilitarian view and the gung-ho stoic view or virtues mm. ethics view, because the stoics would talk about roles and duties and, you know, so his role was emperor. And so you could say his duty is to... Is Lead to, the army. Yeah, exactly. Uh, versus the kind of impartial spectator kind of view of, hmm. of the world and saying, hold on, are you the good guys? <laughs> Maybe he should <laughs> join the good, other side. Is war a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, those, those people are, are human beings that you're killing. Yeah. And I think that the strength of utilitarianism when we're talking about women and slaves mm. and animals, etc., is that it forces us to take that view, it encourages us to take that impartial view. Although Marcus Aurelius and other Stoics talk about benevolence is part of part of the virtue, it doesn't really prioritize it and it and it's it's very much within that what are your what are your roles, what are your duties. There's also, I think it's worth mentioning, a lovely parallel between Stoicism and something that Peter Singer's written so listeners might be familiar with uh, peter singer's book the expanding circle and you know the idea that we can expand our concern from ourselves to the wider community to to the world in general to animals etc and that would be a good thing to do and maybe as time has progressed that's something that that humanity has, has done more and more and when i read that book i loved it but what i discovered later 
was that a Stoic writer who came about a century after Marcus Aurelius, very much at the tail end of, you know, when the Stoics were in their heyday, uh, called Hierocles, came up with this idea of the circles of concern, which are a series of concentric circles where you are in the centre and then it would be your family, then it would be your colleagues, then it would be fellow citizens, then it would be uh, people from other parts of the world. And that's as far as they took it. Some modern Stoics have wanted to include animals and the environment, etc. as well. But the idea would be that you would contract the circles towards you, so you would treat people further out in that circle as being like you. So you would, for instance, call uh, a colleague brother, or you'd call an aunt sister, which I guess you, you get in some religious circles, don't you, where you right. call everybody brother. It's that kind of idea where you treat... Or comrade. Yeah. yeah, comrade, yeah. You treat people that are more further from you as if they were close to you. And again, some modern Stoics have, have turned that into a meditation where you kind of think of, imagine doing that, which is a bit like the Buddhist loving-kindness meditation. Right. So it's lovely parallels between utilitarianism buddhism and stoicism all with this idea of extending benevolence outside oneself and uh, again talk about that strange word orchiosis earlier which it would be part of that journey whereby you know you recognize that naturally probably we're conditioned to think of ourselves and our kin first but we have the ability to to develop the disposition to care more about other people and in that way we would become more naturally virtuous as well. <laughs> right. Okay, let's double back and get a bit more detail on what Stoicism was as a as a set of ideas that existed in, in antiquity. Can you give us a, a bit of a richer picture of what Stoicism was in the in the ancient world? Well, how long have we got? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I got nothing else to do. <laughs> so, ancient Stoicism was quite a complex system which embraced logic, physics, ethics, psychology, mm. worldview in general, everything. Mm. And uh, Chrysippus, who was, I think, the third head of the ancient Stoic school, wrote volumes of work. Mm. So you get people like Seneca, uh, who was a later Roman Stoic, so talking about all these volumes of works. And they're now almost completely lost. Oh, right. <laughs> so we don't so know what the they're The truth about is, is we, we get secondhand accounts of what, what Zeno, who was the Zeno Citium, was the original uh, person that founded Stoicism. Hmm. Uh, and he wrote a, a really big book called the, the Republic, which was something that was in opposition to Plato's Republic, hmm. which sounds by all accounts as if it was very much in the same vein as John Lennon's song Imagine. Oh, right. <laughs> a real kind of socialist utopian republic, mm. as opposed to Plato's elitist rule of the wise. So that's not what we think Stoicism is, is it? That right, kind yeah. of, uh, gosh, so that's what Zeno thought. Wow. But so, that's all kind of lost. I, I guess we don't want to get too stuck on the historical side, but am I right? It, it sounds like Stoicism was less, you know, uh, you know, the views of one guy called Stoic or something. It was more like a school of thought at a university or a school of thought at an, at an academia where all sorts of people were contributing yeah, over the years. Yeah, that's really important. And it and it, so there is no one un, one universal Stoicism. Yeah. And they disagreed with each other. And you'd get people who said, hey, it's we've got to emphasize this bit or, hey, that bit's wrong. So uh, that is very true. 
And that means that everyone has their own stoicism. So yeah. before I get onto my own version of stoicism, which the again best. wouldn't be you, well, I was going to say people wouldn't universally agree with, which is certainly true, but obviously it's the best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's Roman stoicism as well. So again, without going too much into the history, the Greeks had this very complex system, which had their own logic, for instance, a mm. uh, system of logic, philosophical logic, we'd call it now. Then it, kind of migrated to Rome a few hundred years later. And this would be around the time of Christ's birth and just a bit, bit before, a bit after. It really flourished in, in, in Rome. And the Romans, of course, as everyone does, took the bits of Stoicism that they liked and they particularly focused on the ethical part of it. So for the Roman Stoics, they're very interested in much more in the ethics than the logic or the uh, physics, although they are, it's not. It wouldn't be true to say that they completely ignore those, but mm. they they emphasise the the ethics. They also emphasise the the psychological aspects, which is why, and this is probably worth mentioning since we've talked so much about CBT. Mm. So before CBT, there was, as everyone knows, psychoanalysis, and there are a bunch of uh, psychiatrists and and psychologists. Uh, who were getting a bit dissatisfied or more than a bit dissatisfied with psychoanalysis because there are all these people who were doing lots of psychoanalysis and weren't necessarily benefiting from them. And a couple of or, these... Or indeed being harmed sometimes. Sorry, go on. <laughs> a couple of these, uh, Albert Ellis, uh, who started a therapy called... It was called Rational Therapy originally, but then became REBT, which is quite interesting. It started off as purely rational, and then they added the emotional and the behavioural because they found mm. that they needed that. And then uh, Aaron T. Beck, Tim Beck, who created cognitive behavioural therapy. And it's a bit confusing because cognitive behavioural therapy is also an umbrella term for a whole batch of therapies. But then there's Becky and CBT. Mm. And it's Becky and CBT is the bit that is particularly popular in the NHS. It's got the most evidence. It's the brand of CBT that I specialise in. But anyway, these people in the 1950s, 1960s read... Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus mm. and other Stoics. And they were particularly struck by uh, Epictetus very early on in his handbook, and who knows how far they got in the reading the Stoics, but it's quite early on, where he says uh, something like, uh, it's not events that disturb us, it's our interpretation of events. So it's not the thing that happens, the event, it's how you think about it, which they then ran with that, and instead of sitting for many, many hours talking about uh, childhood, sorry, or mm. psychoanalysis listening, I know that's mm. a caricature of what you do, <laughs> they created a much more active, directive, focused therapy, which we described earlier. Mm. So you start off with the idea that how you think affects how you feel, and also what you do affects how you feel, and that's CBT, essentially. And then so you focus on what's going on in the present rather than so much in the past. Although, as we've seen, the past can be relevant. Mm. And then just to kind of differentiate CBT from Stoicism, because they're not the same, Stoicism sowed the seeds for CBT, but then CBT has gone off, particularly Becky and CBT, to be very disorder-specific. Mm. So for each of those disorders like OCD, social anxiety, various types of depression, etc., there is a particular kind of protocol, treatment manual, mm. model, the kind of maps... And and that, it's because of that that you get all the evidence. I see, yeah. REBT has gone off in a slightly more philosophical way, actually, to kind of think about what is a healthy beliefs to have, 
anyway, without going too much into the differences about it, Stoicism has had a lot of indirect influence via CBT, which is one of the reasons, I guess, why I, I, I find Stoicism so so interesting. Now, I realise that I said there were two answers to your question. That's just the first <laughs> bit, which is talking about ancient Stoicism. Yeah. So you've got your Greeks, you've got your Romans who are more into the ethics and more into the very practical side of it. Mm. You've got Epictetus who is writing this quite – well, actually, he didn't write it. It was a student of his who wrote the handbook or Enchiridion, which is quite a short little book, which is basically a kind of self-help book really about how to how to live a better life, how to be more – resilient how to be calmer and and, and more serene hmm. etc which is why it spoke so so well to generations of, of people afterwards including psychologists now stoicism's had a quite a big influence over the years and you know you've got the victorians were quite into stoicism but again they reinvented it in their own way and they probably turned it a bit into a stiff upper lip version You've got intellectuals and philosophers, you know, in, in the in the Enlightenment, like Spinoza, Descartes, uh, even people like David Hume and, and, and Adam Smith, who were kind of not necessarily obviously Stoic. They they kind of read the Stoics, and they were influenced by them and quite liked bits of them. So Stoicism was kind of an interesting little, uh, I don't know, part uh, of the oeuvre of uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But to be honest, when I studied philosophy back in the day, Stoicism didn't have a very good reputation. So I studied uh, ancient Greek philosophy, I did some Aristotle, Plato, and the Stoics, we did. There, wasn't, there, wasn't, there was no course on the Stoics. If I'd wanted to do them, I couldn't do, I couldn't do them. So uh, although Stoicism has this uh, history, it didn't necessarily, you know, it kind of faded away a little bit in terms of, in terms of its popularity, except for being taken on by the CBT people. So yeah, if any listeners are interested to get a, a bit more uh, stoicism in their life, or to think, uh, you know, take take some steps uh, towards thinking uh, in in this way, uh, what what uh, what could they do? What would you recommend that they read? Or, or well, <laughs> I hope could... that I hope that my book, three hundred sixty five ways to stoic, would be helpful. Yeah, it's a lot of ways. Yeah. It's a lot of ways. <laughs> it's, it's uh, but it's uh, the idea of the book is that it's a kind of guided discovery. We talked about guided discovery earlier, where you start off with something very uncontroversial like dichotomy of control starts off with like uh, sports where you know it's kind of like a bit of a cliche control the controllables and then it goes on to talk about uh, how it applies to managing worry for instance because worry is actually about thinking about stuff that you can't really control and ideas like the stoic archer and and i've also as i say is my own blend of stoicism because I've tried to incorporate, trying to integrate it with positive psychology and CBT. So, for instance, there's a chapter on each of the virtues, and then it's drawing on contemporary evidence-based ideas about how to develop self-control, how to develop courage, etc. So, if I'm allowed a little bit of self-promotion, sure, yeah. then uh, I, I do hope that if if people like the kind of the way I'm talking about things, then that might be a place to go. But in terms of the ancient Stoics, there's really three, as I said, a lot of the ancient Stoics have been lost uh, in terms of their writings. Epictetus' Handbook or Enchiridion, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, very, they're both very readable. Seneca wrote 
humongous amounts but his <laughs> his stuff on anger is is good and his and well his short essay on anger and also his short essay on the shortness of life is kind of like an early manual on time management I with see. a stoic twist to it so those are the big three there are also uh contemporaries colleagues in the modern stoic movement such as donald robertson john sellers massimo piglucci and others who have written very readable introductions to stoicism so there's plenty out there Sounds if good. people are interested in it nice okay well we're getting close to the end it's uh getting a bit late on a friday night we should uh let you go back to your to your family the last section i wanted to do was kind of mop up maybe any important advice that you would have for uh listeners regarding mental health that, that maybe didn't come up earlier i mean we just know that there's so many people are uh, struggling with depression or anxiety or various other challenges that uh, you know, reduce their well-being or make it hard for them to, to achieve the, the goals that they have. Are there any kind of maybe high-level uh, messages that you would want people to, to walk away with? I think the first thing is courage. It takes courage to say to oneself that actually something's not quite right here. Uh, and it takes a further step of courage to actually seek support from someone else. Uh, so... I would see it as an act of strength to seek support, also wisdom. So that would be the first message is to don't suffer in silence. And the second message is that help is out there and you might get it from uh, listening to a podcast, you might get it from reading a, a self-help book. So I mentioned Melanie Fennell on those self-esteem. Ross Shaffron is the co-author of some books on perfectionism, for instance. Yeah, I've read one of those. Um, it's very good. Yeah. yeah. And David Burns was one of the oldies for writing Feeling Good in the Feeling Good Handbook. And Christine Podetsky, who I mentioned, would be some of the older generation of CBT self-help writers, but they're still very, very good books. So a lot of people can be helped by those books. They, they can also, if they're in the UK and uh, eligible for the NHS, they can reach out to... Uh, what's now called an NHS talking therapies to avail themselves of, of CBT or reach out to a, to a private therapist if, if they wish. And I know on the 80,000 hours, there's kind of, there's advice about how to, how to seek a therapist. And I, I'd, I'd endorse those things like try and find a good, a good fit for, for you, someone who, who feel there's the right chemistry. And I mean, we also did talk about perhaps going to, going to a GP as well, you know, to rule out, there being a physical element of it in some cases uh, and considering medication as well. So the number one tip is to take it seriously. The number two is to remember that help is possible. And if we've been having this conversation 30, 40 years ago, that would have been less true because CBT was less less developed, less less available, and the form of therapies that were available weren't necessarily quite as helpful. So you think the the process of refining therapeutic methods is is actually causing these these treatments to get better and better over time? Yes, I, 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 I think it's progressing. And it might be a bit confusing because we talked about stoicism, we talked about CBT. I think my mantra for that is CBT, if you've got a mental health problem, stoicism for resilience and a kind of a preventative thing that will help you reduce the chances of developing a big problem and also stoicism for relapse prevention. If you're kind of better, then stoicism might be a good. So that's kind of the way I think about it. If someone comes, if they've got a mental health problem, then I'd go for CBT. And if they're, if they're in a kind of a better phase, then it, it might, be, might be more drawing on, on stoicism. And then we've also got utilitarianism, which is about utilitarianism and stoicism. And then the idea that utilitarianism is something that we can use to think of what virtues or rules 
we should have but that's just when we go into manual mode and we're probably better off programming ourselves to have the right automatic mode and that i would argue that virtues ethics and stoic approach is is certainly one to consider it seems like one issue is that there's so many different treatment options or so many different approaches that someone might take uh, at least with most of the most common uh, mental health issues or challenges that people might face you've got like yeah medication therapy but then there's a whole menu of different therapeutic approaches and there's been many different books that will talk about uh the, these issues and have different uh different ideas would you say that it would make sense for someone to to some extent shop around and you know keep reading different or, or trying different methods until they find one that resonates with them because it's a personal issue or do you think it's more that some things have been demonstrated to work and Others, not so much. I prefer the second answer. I see, yeah. I, I, I would go with the evidence because there's a lot of uh, – I enjoyed reading the article you wrote on – what was it? On the six worst legal careers? Oh, I see. No, I think uh, oh, six, I think it was just uh, what are the world's most harmful jobs? Uh, I yeah. think it might be, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's possible that there are some flaky types of therapy that might hit that list or mm-hmm. maybe number seven. Because they're diverting people from treatments that work towards ones that don't or are harmful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. So although something sounds appealing, it might actually not work. If you find what I said about CBT makes sense, and if CBT is the kind of the main evidence-based way of working for the problem that you have, which would be true of many anxiety problems and, and depression, then I would certainly recommend CBT, even if someone has written a very persuasive sounding self-help book that proposes something different but that isn't to say that there aren't other types of therapy that work well but they just haven't found the evidence for so even within the nhs there are other there are some forms of counseling that are recommended for various issues and i mentioned compassion focused therapy and various third wave cbts so the nice guidelines Quite a good place to go. Uh, so that's, that's, a UK, that's a UK, UK thing. Yeah. thing well, well, UK. Uh, what does NI, uh, NI stand for? Nas- National, National Institutes of Clinical Excellence. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the, the NHS in, the information is, is a good first call. So I think it's it's being a bit cautious about these other alternatives. They might They might be very good, but your mental health is quite an important thing. Yes, yes, so. definitely. Maybe what I was gesturing at is, you know, even within perfectionism, which I guess is a reasonably specific uh, description, there will, might be different reasons that someone has developed perfectionism. I guess you've kind of d- described that there might be different dynamics that are leading to it. And someone might need to read different articles or books uh, until they find someone who is kind of describing maybe what the pattern of belief or behavior is that's that's causing it for them. Yeah, exactly. It's something that resonates, but then something also which has got some good evidence. Mm-hmm. And then finding a practitioner whose main qualification is not that they're able to pull up a good website, but they've actually <laughs> yeah. you know, trained appropriately. Other than CBT, what uh, yeah, what uh, methods of treatment do you think have, have evidence behind them? Well, I don't presume to know better than nice guidelines. I okay, yeah. uh, so I'd, 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 I'd look at those. But I think uh, the third wave CBT, which tend to include mindfulness and sometimes work on values, are starting to get some evidence. Uh the family, the IFS, the family systems work is something that I've, I've done some training and I think is interesting. Yeah. You know, we talk about parts of ourselves. Yeah, I know a lot of people who rave about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, internal family systems, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's this approach of thinking, wow, in my mind, there are many different kind of conflicting beliefs and intuitions. And I guess sometimes someone can have problems because there's tensions or conflicts between them that aren't being resolved peacefully. 
Is that uh, at a broad level? Is that kind of right? I actually need to research into it to know exactly what the evidence based for that. Yeah. But just speaking from experience, it mm. does seem that that really resonates well with some people, mm. and particularly where people have got quite entrenched messages from their childhood, or I see. it seems like it pays them respect. So the CBT approach would be to kind of treat everything at the same level as a, you know, this is a thought, it's rational or irrational. Whereas we were saying earlier that people believe these things for good reason. It's it's kind of like got the image of, you know, there's a, like in the film Inside Out, really, there's this part of you that we want to give it a seat at the table. So when I was talking about anger earlier, the kind of person who typically represses anger would probably benefit from imagining a, a table where anger gets a seat at the table and gets their say. Mm. And then you might have anger and various other parts. And then you get a part called wise, which would then listen and then try and find the truth in it. So in other words, you're you're allowing perhaps a what in IFS might be called an exile to to be heard and to be integrated into the whole system. So I think that's a really interesting approach. And as, as I said, I don't know exactly what the evidence base of it but in in practical terms it seems to be something it's something i do alongside cbt as kind of an extension of cbt and it's kind of quite quite similar actually but it it seems to validate those parts more and allow them out into the open Mm. in cases where they've been suppressed yeah uh, well, I guess it's great that there's something of a flourishing, or I suppose you could think of it as uh, it's like research and development to do with all of these different uh, methods is that people keep tinkering with them and changing them and, you know, kind of forking them into more specific approaches and then trying, hopefully trying to test whether they work or not. My hope is that, you know, we talked about third wave CBTs. I hope that stoicism, and this was turning full circle because it started, you know, CBT came from stoicism. I'd like to see stoicism being considered as another third wave CBT. So one thing that listeners might be interested in, whether stoicism has got any evidence base, and you mentioned earlier that I'm director of research for modern stoicism associated with the Aurelius Foundation as well, and so we're trying to do. We've done some initial pilot studies, and what we found is that when people practice stoicism for a week, I mean, it's a self-selecting sample, we haven't done randomised control trials yet, but it does look like their well-being increases, they have reduced anger, they have increased resilience. If they do it for longer, it lasts, it, then it has a bigger impact. You retest them after a few months and it seems to keep its impact if they've done it for a month. If they practice stoicism for a month, you retest them after three months, it retains its impact. And uh, also we've developed a stoic scale, which is correlational studies. So it seems that a lot of the stoic attitudes and behaviours are very highly correlated with flourishing. So we've started to collect some evidence that seems to be seems to be the case that stoicism, or at least modern stoicism, is really beneficial. And I would personally love to see. Well, in fact, I'm hoping to be part of that part of that research. Although I'm not, I'm a therapist, not a not a researcher. But if there's any researchers out there who are interested in being part of that research team to investigate stoicism, then, then I'd love to hear from you. Because that's that. I think it's at that stage where it's got very promising results. It makes sense. And for, for instance, stoic courses for resilience to be offered, for instance, on the NHS, we'd need a bit more evidence than we've got at the moment. And that's something that I'd like to see happen. Okay, uh, I guess a final question for you is, you've done a whole bunch of research into different uh, therapeutic modes, and I guess stoicism over the years. Is there anything you've learned that is... Well, I guess particularly surprising or, or funny or really stuck in your mind? Yes. So we do Stoic Weeks every year and 
incorporate some research into that. And one year, we did some work on looking at what strengths were associated with Stoicism. As we said, the strengths are quite similar to the virtues. In fact, they are mini virtues. So we kind of expected a lot of strengths to be associated with Stoicism. But what we found was that every strength was associated with Stoicism, including things like humour and enthusiasm. And then we looked at which one was most associated with Stoicism, and it turned out to be zest, which is enthusiasm and vigour. And then we looked at which one increased the most after a week of Stoicism, and it turned out to be zest again. So, you know, you've got the the, uh, caricature of the Stoic as stony-faced and stiff upper lip. And so the idea of a zestful Stoic (laughs) uh, was not only surprising, but also, I think, a very positive image to, to close with. Yeah. Like I said, slightly describing yourself there, I would say. <laughs> Reasonably zestful and pretty stoic. Thank you very much. <laughs> My guest today has been uh, Tim LeBon. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Tim. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Rob. If you'd like to hear more from us on mental health topics there's also two very popular episodes that you could go back and listen to the one i mentioned at the in the intro is episode 100 on having a successful career with depression anxiety and imposter syndrome which is a very unusual and special and very popular episode there's also more recently episode 130 will mccaskill on balancing frugality with ambition whether you need long-termism and mental health under pressure And there's also a reading of an article by Luisa Rodriguez from December 2022, uh, which you can scroll back and find in the feed, which is my experience with imposter syndrome and how to partly overcome it. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsour and Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more available on our site and as always put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. (laughs) 